court. That cool. Good morning. Please be seated. The case of um, Omul Gosum Yatar against Tilly Insurance Melashma Next et al. For the appellant, Omul Gosum Yatar, Sean Dewart, Tim Gleason, and Ian McKellar. For intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Mira Bennett, and Catherine Riley. For the Intervener Income Security Advocacy Center, Nabila Kereshi, Anu Bakshi, and Anna Rosenblatt. For the Intervener Advocacy Center for Tenants Ontario, Ryan Hardy. For the Intervener Canadian Telecommunications Association, Paul Daly. For the Intervenor Aboriginal Council of Winnipeg, Inc. et al., Alison Fensky and Natalie Copps. For the Respondent License Appeal Tribunal, Brian Blumenthal and Valérie Crystal. For the Respondent TD Insurance Meloch Monex, Christine Lonsdale, Adam Goldenberg and Aaron Chesney. For the Intervenor Attorney General of Canada, John Provart, Michelle Kellam. For the Intervenor Attorney General of Ontario, Michael J. Sims, and Matthew Chung. For the Intervenor Procureur General du Québec, Maître Stéphane Rochette, and Maître Francesca Boucher. For the Intervenor Attorney General of Alberta, Michael Wall, Adam Ollenberger. For the Intervenor Insurance Bureau of Canada, and Nina Bombier, Nicola Di Stefano. For the Intervenor Forest Appeals Commission, Robin J. Gage, Julia W. Riddle. Mr. Duarte. It please the court, in the course of my submissions today, I hope to persuade you that the decision below creates a judicially created privative cause that cannot be squared with the law concerning the discretionary nature of judicial review, cannot be squared with the statutes which govern the case before you today, and more importantly, undermines the recalibration of administrative law set down by this court in Vavilov. And Vavilov requires nothing more and nothing less than that the role of independent courts uh, ensure that non-independent decision makers are held to a reasonable level of account. Uh, my colleague, Mr. Gleason, will be making submissions about the specific facts of this case and why the decision below, the original decision, excuse me, was unreasonable and why the remedy of judicial review ought to have been available. The structure of my argument after some initial throat clearing will be thus, I will speak to the legislative intention because we all agree that the legislative intention is the polar star of judicial review. Uh, I will then make submissions about the discretionary nature of judicial review. Uh, 
I will then make submissions about the issue of adequate alternative remedy, and if time permits, I will make submissions about the procedural issue that has been raised. So for the preliminary throat clearing, I make the following submissions. There are many, many differences between courts and tribunals. None is more fundamental than administrative tribunals' lack of in institutional independence from the executor. Executive. For better or worse, there is no constitutional guarantee that administrative tribunals enjoy judicial independence. And if one assumes that all of the professed advantages of administrative tribunals, speed, efficiency, finality, uh, access to justice, if we start with the premise that all of that is real, they are still, these administrative tribunals are still left with a lack of independence which when they are acting as adjudicators, and particularly in my submission when they're acting as adjudicators in a private dispute, um, leaves them suffering with a structural disadvantage by reason of what Chief Justice Lemaire referred to as the dependency on the executive branch in CP and Matsky Indian Band at paragraph 95. Now the law tolerates this lack of independence in recognition of the varied roles played by administrative tribunals. So when one thinks of Ocean Port Hotel, where they were regulating the sale and distribution of liquor, there were sound policy reasons. This court found there were sound policy reasons for tolerating a lack of independence. And the same can be said when um, administrative tribunals are developing public policy. So with all of that having been said, this appeal concerns the responsibility of courts to address this structural and inherent disadvantage of administrative tribunals without impairing the advantages that they do offer. What this appeal in my respectful submission does not concern is the constitutional principle that no administrative tribunal is beyond review. And I'm referring, of course, to the principle first articulated, or I believe first articulated in, in Crevier in 1981. In this case, the case before you today, the legislature has not purported to place any restrictions on judicial review, on the judicial review of the decision maker in, in question. There is no privative cause. And I believe that the parties are in agreement that the case does not concern the outer parameters uh, of the legislature's ability to insulate administrative tribunals from judicial review. Rather, this case concerns the consequences of the leg legislature's decision uh, to possibly affirm the availability of judicial review and the statutory scheme uh, in play. The Crevier issue isn't directly uh, engaged, but is it fair to say that it's indirectly engaged or that in crafting reasons we have to be mindful of that issue because the breadth of you, that you give to the implied intention in the legislature to preclude review could bump up into a constitutional issue. So is that, is that fair to say? It isn't directly engaged here, just as Nordheimer doesn't address it, but it is indirectly engaged in that the breadth of our reasons could, uh, could, could bump into that, that point. Well, my respectful submission, Justice Jamal, is that this court should always be mindful of that. Um, and, and of course, in that sense, it is indirectly uh, implicated in the case before you today. But, but it's, it's not fully briefed. And I hope one day a case comes out of this court which holds that the reasonable standard in, in Vavlov is a floor beyond which the legislature cannot take us. But you, it, my, my submission is, is the court's not fully briefed 
um, to, to, to address uh, that issue today. But but Mr. Dewart, more generally speaking, uh, many of your, uh, you referred to in your, in your introduction about the, the regime, the statutory regime that's in play here. There is a, a, a specificity to the statutory regime in play here in the context in which judicial review is being asked for um, that lends itself, this is more of a question than a statement, does it not lend itself um, poorly to being extrapolated as a model for judicial review as a phenomenon across the country? Is, is, I mean, you, you, the circumstances of the Ontario scheme is not like schemes found elsewhere where uh, different avenues of remedy are available, uh, privative clauses may or may not be present, uh, constitutional issues may or may not be posed uh, direct, more directly. So I'm wondering to what extent we should contain our enthusiasms here and limit ourselves to the good province of Ontario. Well, um, I, I mean, that raises in part the procedural question that I was going to get to at the end. Um, and, and candidly, I'm not qualified to speak on procedural matters uh, outside Ontario. But, but to, to uh, look at it more broadly, uh, Justice Kaziri, um, a procedure should never be the master of substance. And, and, and we, we see, I mean, there's uh, one case from Manitoba which has the same issue that brings us here today. It comes, it's come up in the federal court in the Best Buy case. There are places outside Ontario where uh, judicial review and appeals, statutory appeals, including limited statutory appeals, coexist. And this court contemplated in Vavilov at paragraph 45, I believe, that they would coexist. And, and one, one is not the other. So, um, uh, so I would encourage the court to be wildly enthusiastic in, um, in, in stating that where there is no privative clause, as there is here, um, uh, as there is in the case before you today, Vavilov applies. And Vavilov is not overly rigorous. It mere, all it says is the decision has to be reasonable. That can't be too much to ask. Um, and then a final piece of throat clearing before I turn to um, the legislative intention. If I could ask you to turn up tab one of my condensed book, it's excerpts from Vavilov. And you see I've highlighted certain portions um, and prominently placed in the reasons of paragraph two, you will see that at the end of that paragraph, the court wrote that it saw a need to affirm, uh, sorry, to develop and strengthen a cultural justification in administrative decision making. Um, and there's one important passage I failed to highlight. If I could take you to paragraph four at the bottom of the page, uh, the sentence beginning, today the administration of countless public bodies. The court wrote about the proliferation of administrative tribunals and held, correctly in my respectful submission, that administrative, I'm reading the last two lines of that paragraph four, administrative decision making has become one of the principal manifestations of state power in the lives of Canadians. And then over on the next page, you will see I've highlighted and underscored um, 
at passages at paragraphs 10 and 11. Um, I draw to your attention, it'll become relevant momentarily, uh, the very end of paragraph 10, that uh, courts should derogate from the standard which was established in Vavilov only when there is a clear, quote unquote, indication of legislative intention to do so. Um, <clears throat> I mean, one thing that I think is helpful to bear in mind, although it sounds like I've wandered off into historical irrelevance, is that administrative tribunals are merely a modality by which the state exercises authority to provide services or, regulated, or regulate conduct. Um, historically, the departmental structure of government, which we take as if it were almost a law of nature, is a creation of the 19th century. It didn't exist before then. But things like boards of commissions, was the board of trade. The board of trade wasn't an organization of business people. It was uh, officials of the crown who were acting under delegated authority. And I could give you lots more examples. My favorite is the sewer commissioners, but I won't take you to them. But they were actually involved in flood control. So administrative bodies are just a, a, a modality or a mechanism whereby the state exercises certain regulatory authority, delivers certain services in alternative to a departmental structure, in alternative to other historical structures. So the, the real question, I'm, I'm getting to the end here, the real question is, which has always been in judicial review, when the citizen comes forward and says to the court, the authority that Parliament has conferred on this body has not been properly used. I wish redress. And to me, it's the same question whether it's a minister in a department, whether it's, it's a regulatory tribunal, whatever. It's, it's that simple fundamental question. And the rest of it is, is governmental mechanisms of the day. Well, that's certainly so, Justice Rowe, and, and, uh, and but what there is as a result of what you've described is his constant tension that this court's been wrestling with since before I went to law school, which is you, how you marry uh, the legislative intention with the need to, to overview. But I, I would add to the description of uh, administrative tribunals that, that you've given, Justice Rowe, I would add the following. This is an adjudication of a private dispute. And for better or worse, the legislature has seen fit to take the administration, excuse me, the, the, the adjudication of a private dispute between an insured and insurer and given it to a tribunal. And that doesn't, and, and so that doesn't fit any of, of the models that, that or the examples that you were providing in my submission, Justice, Justice Rowe. And, and, and that reality has to be uh, factored into the court's analysis of the matters that were before, are before it today. Um, so, um, let me just finish uh, throat clearing with Vavilov. Uh, there's the reference and it's highlighted to the, the court heard concerns about a two-tiered justice system um, and uh, saw the need to protect Canadians from a two-tiered justice system. And that's what gave rise to the reasonableness review. Um, and then 
and, and as you will have seen from my factum, uh, the concurring reasons uh, agreed, and it's the very last page of this tab, the concurring reasons agreed that there was a problem. And it was discussed, um, and uh, I'm now at paragraph 14 of Vavlov, it was discussed, or addressed rather, by insisting that administrative decision makers must adopt a culture of justification. And by definition, if something must be adopted, it was previously absent. It can't be um, uh, controversial to say that Vavilov changed the law. And there is no reason in my submission for this court to retreat um, from Vavilov uh, three or four years later. So, um, uh, legislative intent, it's the polar star of judicial review. Everyone agrees on that. Um, if you could look at tab and two. Before you keep going, I just want to talk to you about legislative intention. And I'm wondering, what do you make uh, with regards to the extensive amendments that were made to the Act? How do we factor that in? Uh, so, just once, let, let, me, um, well, let me start by actually taking you to tab two. Um, uh, and you'll see the very first uh, statutory provision I've set out there is from the Insurance Act. This is part of the amendments. So it's, it's not as if there was some judicial oversight, or excuse me, legislative oversight. The section before you uh, here, section 280, was part of the amendments uh, to which the respondents refer. Um, and you will see under section 3, limit on court proceedings, no person may bring a court, uh, proceeding in any court except an appeal as provided for in the Insurance Act or an application for judicial review. So, so that's, that is the answer if we are to read statutes in their ordinary grammatical sense. That's, that's the answer and, and I don't even need to fall back on the uh, Judicial Review Procedure Act which the legislatures deemed to have known was in existence. Um, But to fully answer your question, I'm going to go out of order, which is a very dangerous thing to do, um, because as for the balance of the uh, amendments that you've asked me about, Justice O'Bonswin, the, the arguments conflate adjudication at first instance with appeal and review. Um, and uh, TD quotes at length from Mr. Cunningham's report, um, in their factum, including a court option would undermine the proposed reform, um, uh, Mr. Cunningham wrote. Um, he saw no reason to continue providing an option to go to court in every case. He was, a writing, he was writing about eliminating access to courts for the adjudication of the dispute at first instance. And it does not, in my submission, advance matters to observe that the transfer of adjudication from courts to administrative tribunals uh, signals an intention for less judicial involvement. That's self-evident. That much is self-evident. And it's a generality. And what the respondents and what the courts below failed to do was to move beyond that self-evident generality and look to the specifics. And the specifics of the case are that judicial review is not barred. It's, it, it, that, that's, that's plain English or French. Um, <clears throat> And the flaw, the flaw in the reasoning can be seen in the respondents relying on uh, Stigenga and Economical Mutual. That's a decision in which um, the plaintiff brought an action for damages 
for bad faith in handling the uh, statutory accident benefits claims. And the Court of Appeal for Ontario confirmed that an action was barred by, by Section 280 sub 3, but that doesn't assist in determining whether or not judicial review is barred. Well, in, indeed, it brings it in line with most administrative tribunals. Yes, Justice Garrett-Sachs, yes. Now, let me go back in order. Um, uh, to the proper interpretation of this legislation and the intention of the legislature. Um, uh, the, as, I, as I've already said, the ordinary sense of these words uh, confirm that there's an explicit affirmation that judicial review is available without any restriction or limitation, and it ousts the jurisdiction of superior courts only with respect to damages actions or, or actions concerning disputes at first instance. So in addition to uh, reading uh, statutes uh, in their ordinary and grammatical sense, Rizzo Shoes instruct us, instructs us to read them in context harmoniously with the scheme of the Act. So the scheme of the Act is that we are dealing here with benefits for injured persons. Some of the injuries may be catastrophic. Benefits include income replacement. Can I just go back to what you responded about Section 280 and it not being barred? I get that. But I guess the question that we have to figure out is when should then courts hear these cases and what's your response to when that should be specifically? The, the court should always be available to litigants to seek judicial review. And I will address, I'm terrified to go to uh, order twice, so I will come back to that. That's a question of discretion. And it, it, my client has never suggested that it's not a discretionary remedy. But what kind of factors would you be looking at? Um, I would be looking at timeliness. I would be uh, looking at prematurity. I would be looking at alternative adequate remedy. But what I, well, I don't get to decide, but what I would submit is that what the court should not do is just impose um, uh, an arbitrary, capricious screen that because it's these benefits that I'm going to finish describing momentarily being administered by this tribunal, somehow that makes it uh, uh, available only in rare or unusual cases, with no guidance, by the way, about what, what rarity would have to exist in order for the, you know, the subject to be able to present itself to the court. But as I, as I was saying a, a second ago, uh, the benefits concern people sometimes with catastrophic injuries. The benefits include income replacement, nursing care, attendant care for those who are unable to care for themselves because of their injuries, prosthetic devices, wheelchairs for persons with disabilities. TD correctly points out that the importance of a decision to the affected individual has an important bearing on the exercise of uh, discretion and judicial review. That's at paragraph uh, 76C of its factum. It then goes on to describe the benefits in question as pecuniary. And in my submission, it, it would be preferable, it would be correct, to characterize these benefits as matters concerning personal dignity, well-being, and autonomy. So that's, part of, that's the first part of the statutory context. The second part of the statutory context was that until these, until these amendments came in, these disputes were justiciable in a court of inherent and plenary jurisdiction with full appeal rights. And that got taken away. 
And in my submission, in that context, it makes complete sense that the legislature uh, explicitly provided, as it did, that judicial review continues to be available. So I say I conclude my submissions on the legislative scheme by saying that JR is available not because of the constitutional impediment to a complete bar, but because the act and the scheme of the act provides for it. Doesn't it, uh, I mean, fundamentally, if we start from first principles, I mean, prerogative remedies are extraordinary in the sense that they are discretionary. Not that they are rare or presumptively unavailable, they are discretionary. Exercise of the Crown's prerogative rights. Uh, appeals are statutory, and if they are existing, if they are provided for by the legislature, they are matters of right. So uh, a legislature speaking about the limited right of appeal on questions of law speaks about the limited right to appeal, but it says nothing about prerogative remedies and how the Crown's prerogative remedies from a court of a superior court are to be exercised. They're fundamentally different beasts. I mean, stepping back even from your argument to the history, Vavilov affirms that distinction between statutory rights of appeal and judicial review. So saying something about a statutory right of appeal really doesn't say anything about the availability or non-availability of judicial review. I mean, isn't it more fundamental, no more fundamental than that? It is not no more. It, it, that's, I completely agree with that submission. <laughs> this is not a submission, it was a question. But, it, but all right, let me try that again, Justice Jamal. In my submission, that is a completely accurate statement, both of what Vavilov holds and, and what this court should stand by. And, and why is it, why is it a an exercise of the prerogative? And why is it discretionary? You have to understand it in the historical context. What, how this used to work a long time ago is people would come before the king and they'd say, you have granted authority to certain individuals, certain office holders, to make decisions. And we're saying to you that they have misused this authority and that therefore we petition you in the exercise of your prerogative to give us a remedy. Now, it's the same question. It, you just have to transpose it into a modern institutional context. But it is the citizen now coming forward and saying, someone has been given this decision-making authority and, and, and we submit before a court as opposed to before the monarch that, uh, that the authority has been misused in some way that warrants a remedy. It's, it's, it's the same general question. But the fact that it's discretionary and it's the exercise of the prerogative is best understood by virtue of how it arose. Yes, Justice Rowe, and it's, it's those very, it's, it's the constituent element of the reasonable test and the discretionary nature of the, of the remedy that provide the protection that the respondents um, uh, say the legislature requires. And let me actually just elaborate on, on, on your question, Justice Rowe. If I could take uh, the court back to Vavilov uh, at tab one of my book. And uh, there's a paragraph that's not copied there that, that the other parties rely on. I'm going to read it to you. It's in paragraph 24. 
uh, <clears throat> excuse me, our legislature has not explicitly prescribed that a court is to have a role in reviewing the decisions of administrative decision makers. It can safely be assumed that the legislature intended the decision maker to function with a minimal of judicial interference. So great emphasis is placed on, on paragraph 24 of Vavlov and those, uh, and those words. But now turning um, to my book, if you could look at paragraph 33, And the set first sentence I've highlighted, the presumption of reasonless review is intended to give effect to the legislature's choice to leave certain matters with the administrative decision maker. The test incorporates the minimum of judicial interference. The, the reasonable test reflects the, the, the minimum of judicial interference that the court uh, recognized. Um, let me now turn to the question of the discretionary nature of the remedy. Uh, the parties agree that um, the remedy is discretionary. They part company on what that means. And as I've already made this submission, let me repeat it. I say that the existing discretionary bars to granting JR have proven to be effective. And there's no need to further, or excuse me, there's no need to fetter court's discretion, which is the effect of the decisions below, which impose a universal um, additional restriction, as I've already said, on an arbitrary basis that has nothing to do with the conduct of the parties um, and, and can't be justified with reference to the, to the legislation. And so the best example of that is in my factum. It's Myers and National Parole Board. So Mr. Myers escaped from prison, was unlawfully at large, and uh, he tried to judicially review the parole board for not granting him parole. And uh, the court thought that that self-help meant that he was not justified to a discretionary remedy. It depends on the facts of the indiv individual cases. And time marches on, so I won't t take, them to, take you to them now, but there are two or three cases in my book at tabs five, six, and seven from opposite ends. One's from the Newfoundland and Labrador Court of Appeal and the other's from the British Columbia Court of Appeal. And it, they, they stand for the self-evident proposition that if there's only one answer or if you restricted the answer, you've killed the discretion. The decision maker at first instance doesn't have discretion because you've told him or her what to do. Um, Homex Realty at tab three of my book decision of this case. Um, if I could ask you uh, to turn to page 1035, it's a bit difficult to see the number there because of a photocopying glitch, but I've highlighted the extract from uh, Wade's Administrative Law Treatise and where uh, the authors set out the well-known fact that the remedy is discretionary. Um, and then I've uh, highlighted and underscored the particular passage, the discretion to withhold remedies against unlawful action may make inroads on the rule of law and must be exercised with the greatest of care. That plus grande prudence we see in the French version. And I say that the creation of a blanket rule cannot properly be characterized as the exercise of great 
prudence and care. Um, and then the other passages which have been highlighted and underscored there make what I've already said is my submission is a self-evident point that discretion must be exercised on a case-by-case -case basis. must be exercised by case-by-case -case basis. Um, are you suggesting that uh, the some uh, factors that courts should take into consideration in order to decide, let's say that judicial review is available, but uh, should we entertain it or not? Should the court entertain it or not? Or not? What are the factors to guide the courts? Uh, prematurity. Um, Fraud and misconduct, as we saw with Mr. Myers, um, uh, not acting in a timely fashion, adequate alternative remedy. The, the, the factors are laid down in a wealth of cases uh, from this and other courts. Okay. But, but, but what no court has said until recently in the Ontario courts below is that there's just, we're just not going to entertain it if you're this particular litigant coming from this particular tribunal um, uh, where there's a right of appeal, a limited right of appeal. Um, all right. Um, Strickland at tab four of my book. Um, If I could ask you please to turn to page 736, paragraph 42. Um, and, that, and by the way, that provides at least a partial answer to your question. Um, and uh, the part, I, I forgot to fail to highlight something that's important, it will become uh, relevant in a second. Uh, right before the bottom of the paragraph, before the sentence I have highlighted, we have in order for an alternative form or remedy to be adequate, neither the process nor the remedy need be identical. And so I just want to plant that in the back of people's minds when I get to alternative, adequate alternative remedy, as I will momentarily. But then you'll see the part that I did highlight. Uh, uh, this court, Justice Cromwell, uh, writing uh, for the court, underscored in the original the fact that the exercise of discretion requires an examination of uh, all of the circumstances. Um, and then over the next page, uh, Justice Cromwell wrote twice that it's not a matter, of, there's no checklist. And yet the respondents would have this all come down to one very short checklist. If it's a licensed appeal tribunals, accident benefits case, there's an additional screen you have to pass through in order to justify judicial review. And that is irreconcilable with what the court said here and invented whole cloth. May I just uh, bring us back to the facts of Strickland, which was a, a discretion about a judicial review application, but as between the jurisdictions of two courts. Um, and, and why is it applicable here? Um, in this different circumstance um, as a governing authority? Well, um, I was politely chided by my friends for not having raised it my factum, so I thought I'd throw it in here. It's, it, it is readily distinguished on the facts, but, but the passages I've just referred you to um, are, 
in my submission, an accurate statement of the law generally. But it, 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 it doesn't add to the uh, analysis. Um, All right, and then let me just, before um, I, I, I finish off, address uh, adequate alternative remedy. They say that there's, as I understand it, two submissions before you. An appeal on a question of law is an adequate alternative remedy. Um, and I hearken back to uh, Strickland, uh, where in the, in the note I took you to about adequate alternative remedies, uh, it's not the, just bear with me. It's not the process nor the remedy that, that or it, Strickland held, it's not the process or the remedy that need to be identical. The problem here isn't the process, and the problem here isn't the remedy. The problem is that there's a gap of a, of a decision that can't be uh, reviewed in any fashion, um, as we saw. As it, it's exactly what happened in this case. And if, um, but is it in this case, though, it was an exercise of discretion, and at the end of the day, your client just didn't like the result of them exercising their discretion? She definitely didn't like it, but uh, Justice Bonton, the, 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 it, it purported to be an exercise of discretion, but it, it, it was an act of arbitrariness. It's not a, when, when, I mean, look at, look at Volchoy and College of Massage Therapists where it dealt with prematurity. Uh, that, there's a principal reason and reasoned reasons for, for uh, withholding the remedy while the matter is still pending before the administrative tribunal. There's no principled basis for denying. The, it, as I've said already, it can't be justified by reference to the statute. It can't be, refer, it can't be justified by reference to the nature of the benefits that were denied. There's no principled basis to say that you know, just because it's you know, these uh, parties before this tribunal, uh, we're going to withhold judicial review. And, and in my submission, you will search the reasons of the Court of Appeal and the Divisional Court in vain to find any justification for what they say, any true reasoned principle justification for what they say. Mr. Jewett, can I ask you, you've referred a couple of times to the fact that this is a dispute between private parties, and I will confess that I hadn't stopped to think about it that way. How does it factor into your analysis? What's, what does that point aid? Um, it, well, what it heightens, it, it, it goes back to what I said towards the outset of my submissions, Oceanport, where it's the regulation of the sale of alcohol, or, um, or uh, an administrative tribunal that's setting public policy. One can understand that the lack of independence there is, is, a, is a favorable thing. And so this is at the other end of the spectrum. And the lack of independence calls for greater oversight. Because the license appeal party, they're not advancing uh, government policy. They're not regulating anything. They're deciding there's a contract of insurance between an insured person and the insurer, a contract of the utmost good faith. And we have this non-independent body adjudicating it, which is a, a radical change to the way it existed before. We have to assume for the purposes of this appeal that it's a good thing, but it cries out for enhanced review. All right, uh, I'm going to have to turn things over to Mr. Gleason. 
Um, the, the other form of, of adequate alternative remedy is reconsideration. I rely on the submissions in my factum. Um, in my, the, the respondents call it robust in my respectful submission, as you will see when you hear from Mr. Gleason, it, it is tepid. It is a tepid form. And given the lack of independence, it's a tepid form. Well, and, and really, isn't the more fundamental issue that uh, you're judicially reviewing the reconsideration? So, yes. I mean, that's the more fundamental point. It's whether it's tepid or, or robust. It doesn't really matter because that's what you're seeking judicial review of. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's the other reason that argument is flawed in my submission. Um, uh, all right. I'm actually going to resist the temptation to say anything. Thank you for your attention. Court should perform its uh, judicial review function, perhaps optimistically. Uh, I'm going to suggest to you that the courts below failed to do that and uh, that the decision itself of the lot was unreasonable. And it's not a legally or factually complex case. Uh, the starting point, though, is as Mr. Dewart took you to the uh, decision of this court in Vavilov. Uh, prescribes how uh, the courts are uh, to approach uh, this review function and uh, specifically at paragraph 74 uh, the court this court tells us that uh, the reasonableness review focuses on justification and you heard from Mr. Dewart about this justification obviously it follows from that that reasons are fundamental uh, to the exercise in paragraph 83, and this is still at tab one of the uh, book, uh, the court, this court again tells us that the focus must be on the decision actually made by the tribunal, uh, including both the reasoning process and the outcome. And uh, uh, this court tells us again, this court is to review, or the court is to review, and not decide uh, the, the matter afresh. And this is an answer to the submission of uh, my friend for uh, TD uh, about uh, extraneous facts that were not considered or not weighed by the, uh, by the LAT, including that the appellant must have known about the limitation period because she availed herself of the dispute process, or she must have known about the process and understood it because she availed herself of it. And this is not what drove the decision of the adjudicator, and this court tells us in Vavilov that is what is under review. You must focus on the decision made by the adjudicator. At paragraph 86, um, and this is on page uh, 728, the highlighted portion in uh, tab one, uh, the court says this. In short, it is not enough for the outcome of a decision to be justifiable. Where reasons for a decision are required, the decision must also be justified by way of those reasons, by the decision maker to those whom the decision applies. While some outcomes may be at odds with the legal and factual context that, uh, that they could never uh, be supported by intelligible and rational reasoning, an otherwise reasonable outcome also cannot stand if it was reached on an improper basis. And all this is, uh, again, to emphasize that it's the decision of the lat that's under review, not the entire factual constellation and how this court or the courts below would have, would have addressed it. And then finally, uh, the last uh, excerpt from Vavilov I'll leave you with is at page uh, 732, it's paragraph 96. 
Again, the highlighted uh, portion this court tells us, where reasons contain a fundamental gap or an unreasonable chain of analysis, it's not appropriate for the court to fashion its own reasons in order to buttress the administrative decision. And my submission is and will be uh, that that's effectively what the TD asks you to do, and it is what the Court of Appeal purported to do as well. The Divisional Court, as we know, did not even address the, the performance of the, uh, of the review function. Uh, it uh, ducted, as Mr. Dewart complains to you, uh, improperly. But at tab 10 of the book, you'll see an excerpt from the reasons of the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal did deal with reasonableness as an afterthought, after it uh, affirmed what the Divisional Court did in terms of not entertaining a review. Uh, it, uh, it did address reasonableness. And at paragraph 50, uh, that court found that the adjudicator held that it was uh, the September 19th letter that finally denied the appellant's benefits. And uh, perhaps I should back up. Uh, I said this case is not factually complex. It isn't. There are basically three events uh, that are important for your purposes. There were three letters. We know that the appellant was in receipt of benefits, three kinds of benefits. For the purpose of my submission, I'm focusing on the income replacement benefits, and uh, the reason for that will become clear. Um, the first event is in January of 2011, where uh, the Court of Appeal, the LAT, held that there was a valid refusal of benefits. Uh, the Court of Appeal said that the adjudicator uh, found that it was the September 19th letter. So this is the third letter. There were, in fact, three events. January, February, and September. And the Court of Appeal said that the adjudicator found that the September 19th letter finally denied the appellant's benefits. And that the adjudicator went on to reiterate his central point that the January 7th letter denied both the IRB and housekeeping and maintenance benefits. Um, the court found that the, the uh, dispute, or the adjudicator found that the dispute resolution process form was attached to the January letter. And therefore, when the benefits were ultimately denied in September, according to the Court of Appeal, she was fully informed in clear language with this dispute form. Now, leave aside for the moment that that is not what the adjudicator uh, found, and I'll take you to that in a moment. Uh, the Court of Appeal went on at uh, paragraph 52 to hold that the appellant has failed to demonstrate anything unreasonable in the reconsideration decision, and then therefore denied uh, or said that uh, judicial review is not available. The Court of Appeal doesn't do any analysis or review of the findings of the adjudicator or the basis for them in the evidence before the, the tribunal. And as I noted, the Divisional Court uh, undertook uh, no review at all. If either court had my submission, uh, they would have observed the following. In tab 11, you'll find the, uh, an excerpt from the original LAT decision. And at paragraph 10, uh, the adjudicator uh, finds that the January 7, 2011 letter denied uh, the IRB, income replacement benefits, and housekeeping benefits, attached a notice of examination requiring uh, her attendance for an insurer's examination before a psychologist and a psychiatrist. And below the signature line, uh, it states, uh, enclosed applicant's right to dispute. This is the, the, uh, the form that becomes central to the decision. The adjudicator went on uh, at paragraph 11 to find that on February 16, 2011, this is the second event, 
The respondent provided correspondence to the applicant denying her housekeeping and home maintenance and income replacement benefit following the insurer's examinations being completed. Now, this was an error, and uh, the adjudicator acknowledges this on reconsideration. In fact, we know that the uh, February 16th letter reinstated the IRB benefit. And this becomes very significant, and both the adjudicator and the courts miss this completely. As of February 16th, the benefits are renewed. There is no refusal to dispute. And so uh, what's required is a, a valid refusal after February 16th. At uh, paragraph 14, the adjudicator uh, notes that there was a dispute in the evidence about uh, whether the form was actually attached to the January letter. And I would submit to you, and I've provided uh, the evidence, excerpt from the evidence that was before him, I would submit to you that that evidence is far from establishing that the form was attached. And in fact, the preponderance of the evidence is that the form was not attached, but that is not the basis for my submission to you today. My submission to you today is that there's a gap, there's an unreasonable chain of analysis uh, that occurs when the IRB benefits are reinstated in February and there is never a valid refusal after that day. Over on the next page, paragraph 15, um, as I said, the adjudicator found as a fact that the form was attached to the January 7th um, letter. And so that, he found, was a valid refusal. As I said, the evidence uh, is in the following tabs, and I, Mr. Dewart didn't leave me enough time to take you through it. Uh, I would suggest to you, however, it's, it's far from unequivocal that the form was attached to the January 7th letter. But uh, significantly, if I can ask you to turn to tab 16, uh, this is an excerpt of the evidence of the appellant before the adjudicator at first instance. And the two paragraphs that are important for your purposes are paragraph 5, where she says the letter was not attached. Leave that aside. Paragraph 6, on February 16th, TD wrote to confirm my ongoing entitlement to income replacement benefits. And you don't have to take her word for it because uh, TD uh, did make, did place as an exhibit before the uh, adjudicator at tab 17, the February 16th letter. And if you, uh, if you look at the highlighted portion, you'll see it does reinstate the income replacement benefit. Um, and it says on the next page, we'll continue to monitor your psychology treatment and rehabilitation in order to assess your ongoing entitlement to this benefit. Um, and there may be a request for an updated certificate, uh, but it's clear that the benefits were reinstated and in effect, as of February 16th, there was no longer a valid or invalid or any form of refusal of the benefit. Tab 18 then, uh, we come to the reconsideration decision. And this is the one that uh, the appellant sought judicial review from. Uh, Starting point is paragraph 10. Um, the adjudicator finds that the uh, February 16th letter and the September 19, 2011 letter are not valid refusals. And that's pursuant to the statute and to this court's decision in Smith, uh, which I think the parties all agree is governing. Um, and so the, the finding of the adjudicator is that they are not valid refusals. And, uh, because most, they are not valid refusal because of what? Because they didn't, they didn't include the form. The form. Yeah. And, uh, and the form has to be attached with the letter denying? Yes. Okay. 
So he, so the adjudicator, Justice Cote, found it's not a valid, it's not a valid refusal, and that's what the court was reviewing. And uh, I think I know where you're going with this question: is can the court then, as the Court of Appeal did, look at the facts, look at the evidence, and come up with its own reason for denying judicial review? or for denying a benefit. And that's not how judicial review works, according to this court in Babloff. You have to review the decision made by the adjudicator. And the adjudicators clearly decided September 19th is not a valid refusal. And of course, we know February 16th isn't it reinstated the IRB benefit. So um, as I said, at this point, there's no denial of IRB benefits. Uh, and, but the adjudicator goes on to find that the January 7th letter was a valid refusal. At paragraph 12, he says, upon receipt of the letter, she had, the appellant had two options. Provide, the new, uh, provide a new disability certificate and attend for an examination or commence the dispute resolution process. So those are the two options he identifies that she had. And, but he never addresses that she chose option one. She submitted the form and her benefits were reinstated. So uh, contrary to what the Court of Appeal found, uh, the adjudicator did not find that the September letter was the final denial. He found in paragraph 16 here that the January 7th letter was the valid denial. <coughs> he specifically found that the letter was not a valid, the September letter was not valid. Court of Appeal incorrectly reads this and concludes that there was a finding that the September letter was valid, a valid refusal. And had the court, in my submission, considered what the adjudicator decided, it would have found it to be unreasonable because of the reinstatement. Neither the Divisional Court nor the Court of Appeal conducted that review. Uh, um, and the submissions of TD before this court are not based on what the adjudicator actually did either. The TD says, look, she, she obviously knew about the process because she invoked it in various places over the years. That's not what drove the adjudicator's decision. It wasn't part of his reasoning at all. So do we, uh, uh, does the fact that uh, your client applied and attended mediation to dispute the denial of benefits inform us whether there was a valid denial of benefits at a given point in time? Well, that's a very good question, Justice Cote, and it's a question the adjudicator might have addressed but did not. Um, and, and the reason I would say to you that he didn't uh, uh, comes from the decision of this court in Smith and Cooperators, and that's at tab 19. Um, and my main submission, I'll hold for a moment on that, but if you go to paragraph 16, um, is where the court comments on the consumer protection nature of this uh, legislation and, uh, and why, uh, because of that, it's inappropriate to, to examine all of the circumstances around. It, you're supposed to apply what the court called a bright line boundary between permissible and impermissible with undue solicitude for particular circumstances that might operate against the claimant in certain cases. And if you look then back at the adjudicator's reasons, um, in paragraph 9, back at tab 18, he specifically, at 9 and 10, specifically refers to Smith, in my submission, for that reason. He's saying, I can't find that September and February were valid refusals because I'm bound by Smith. And Smith says, bright line boundary. And we're not going to look at, as TD suggests you do, look at all, this other, all these other things that are happening in the universe that the adjudicator did not weigh or consider and find for yourself that maybe she knew or ought to have known or maybe the benefit should have been denied. That's not what judicial review is. You're supposed to be reviewing the decision of the adjudicator. Now, 
Um, I want to make one further submission on Smith, though, and it's about the paragraph 20. It's on the last page of my book. And this uh, is where uh, the court deals with the facts before it and expressed some, Justice Gonchi expressed some doubt about whether the notice in that case uh, met the, uh, the minimum requirement of clarity. And here's what he said, there's some doubt in my mind as to whether the notice given by the respondent in this case would even be considered a refusal in a non-technical sense absent the refusal letter sent to the uh, appellant solicitors. The notice says, inter alia, if you disagree with our assessment, please contact us immediately. If we cannot settle your application to your satisfaction, you have the right to ask for mediation. And what Justice Gontier goes on to say is there's an equivocal sense of indeterminacy in the decision of the insurer giving the reader the impression that the insurer may well change its stance if it is contacted for a discussion of the matter. And my submission is that the case before you is, is more troubling, far more troubling in terms of indeterminacy and, and, uh, and um, sort of equivocal sense of indeterminacy. The decision before you, and it, it's at tab 12, is equivocal in the sense that first, benefits are only stopped uh, until a certificate is provided. So, and, and we should read, have enough time, we should read the, uh, the letter itself. Please be advised that we have made a determination that you're not entitled to the following uh, specified benefits as a result of your failure to submit a completed disability certificate. Um, payment uh, of your benefits has been stopped, effective uh, January 4. Please be advised no pen pay benefit is payable for the period after the date specified and before the day the insurer receives the disability certificate. So, um, and it goes on to say, we want to have you examined. So in terms of an equivocal sense of indeterminacy, this is far more uh, indeterminate. They've, they've said your benefits will be reinstated, you just have to give us the form. The word refusal does not appear, and this is the word used in the statute, the word refusal does not appear in this letter. The benefits are stopped and it's clearly only temporary and easily cured. And uh, as with Smith, it gives the clear impression that the insurer may well change its stance as as Justice Gonche said. In this case, um, as I said, refusal does not appear. If there was any doubt that this might be the case, that it's temporary, by February 16th, they did reinstate the IRB. This is more than equivocal in my submission. It's a repudiation of, of the previous refusal. And neither the Court of Appeal uh, nor the Divisional Court uh, ever addressed this problem. This, uh, as we know, the Division Court did not undertake any, um, any review, but the Court of Appeal doesn't look at this gap, and this is what Vavilov says we focus in on. If there's a gap in the reasoning, and it has to be the reasons of the adjudicator, it's unreasonable, and it ought to be judicially is reviewed. It, is it fair to say, then, that the error that you're relying on in the Court of Appeal's reasons is the sentence the adjudicator therefore found that when the IRBs finally denied by the letter of September 19th, the appellant was f fully informed of the dispute resolution process. It's that, therefore, that's the error, the gap filling, yes, the supplying uh, of reasons. Yes, a couple of errors packed in there, Justice Jamal. Uh, first of all, the adjudicator didn't find that they were finally denied in September. He found only one valid uh, refusal. Um, and, and 
the other point is that the Court of Appeals says, well, she must have known, this is what TD argues. And it couldn't have found because the form, you say, wasn't attached in September. It was only attached in, the finding was that it was attached in January. Exactly. So it couldn't have been effective anyway exactly. under Smith. Is that, is that the point? That's exactly right. Yeah. And, um, and of course, I didn't take you through the evidence, ample evidence that the form wasn't attached in January either. And, um, and I hesitate to take you down to the weeds with three minutes left, but, uh, but the, uh, to summarize, the, there's a fax in the evidence, a um, copy of the fax received by the appellant's lawyer. It's at tab 15. And it's clear, there's a six-page fax. It says there's six pages. You can count the pages. The form is not there. There's the two-page letter. There's a three-page uh, notice of examination. And there's the fax cover page. So, Mr. Gleason, if we follow your reasoning, and I'm not saying that I'm not going to, but would it mean to. that the limitation period would not have started yet? That's as, right. As of, as of today? That's correct, Justice Cote, and that was, the, that was the finding in Smith as well. Mr. Gleason, there's a point I don't understand, but you'll, you'll I'm, so I'm looking at the January letter. Yes. You say it doesn't use the word refusal. Mm -hmm. It does say you are not entitled. Yes. I mean, in like the first sentence. Um, and, and, I mean, couldn't one say, I'm thinking of the equivocal sense of indeterminacy point that you raised, that, that that even if the January letter is a mere suspension, the appellant knew what was on the table, that there was a factual finding by the adjudicator that the appellant was informed of her options uh, to challenge the denial of the benefits. Is, is that, I mean, are, is this, are we really in a state of indeterminacy is that is it what what's i don't I've, maybe i've missed a piece of your your well, reasoning i think just because we're what we need to look at is what she was invited to challenge so and you're right it, the the first sentence says that you're not entitled as a result of your failure to refuse or refusal to submit this form this certificate right so She's invited to challenge that or to submit the certificate. Now, would you challenge it if you hadn't submitted the certificate? It's not a finding that she's not disabled. It's not a finding that, uh, that she doesn't, uh, she doesn't um, meet the criteria for eligibility for benefits. It's a finding that she didn't submit this form. And, uh, and, and he, and the adjudicator, correctly finds that she's given two options uh, in his reasons. She's given two options. One, submit the form, or two, commence the dispute resolution process. And, and she clearly chose option one. And that ended the, if it was a refusal, which I suggest to you it wasn't, you have in our factum, uh, there's a separate uh, statutory regime governing a suspension for this very reason. So you, your benefits are stopped if you, under section 33, if you don't submit the form, but if you do submit the form, they must be reinstated. And so uh, there's a live issue as to whether this was even a refusal or it's, it's a suspension. Uh, but for your purposes, my submission is that once she submits the form, selects option one, and is entitled to the benefits, there must be a subsequent, you have to have a subsequent valid refusal to trigger a limitation period for this would be a separate dispute. Uh, what she's disputing or what she wants to dispute now is not that she failed to submit a form. It's a, a different dispute entirely. I'm and sorry, your yes. time is up, so oh. I would like you to conclude. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. 
Mira Bennett. Chief Justice, Justices, the Attorney General of British Columbia respectfully submits that when considering whether judicial review should be heard in the face of a limited appeal clause, the courts should balance legislative intent against the rule of law. The Attorney General proposes a revised Strickland framework for addressing this question. So I have two points in my submissions. First, I will discuss overriding principles of judicial review and why it is important to apply similar interpretive principles to privative clauses and statutory appeal clauses. And second, I will explain the Attorney General's proposed test, which is based on modifications to the test in Strickland. I intend to spend most of my speaking time on this second point. The Attorney General submits it is important to adopt a revised framework for two reasons. First, legislative intent is the polar star of judicial review, and the rule of law is the countervailing force of gravity. Strickland reflects these key principles, ensuring an alternative remedy is adequate, safeguards the court's supervisory role consistent with the rule of law and considering whether judicial review is appropriate ensures the will of the legislature is given effect. Giving too much weight to the legislative intent behind a statutory appeal clause risks upsetting Strickland's balance. And so my second point is, is that similar is, is, interpretive is this a, principles... Is this a balancing act? You seem to be saying that uh, legislative intent should be set up in opposition to the rule of law. I mean, they should be, they should be consonant, not, not countervailing. And it would be extraordinary if we were to interpret the legislative intent as being undermining the rule of law. Yes, Justice Rowe. Um, and I would say in most circumstances that would be correct. Of course, the two key uh, principles of judicial review is ensuring that the uh, executive conforms with the uh, legislative intent and then ensuring that the intent of legislature is consistent with the rule of law. And so we have a revised framework that we say takes into account both of these key principles. So on our second point, we say uh, that if a statutory appeal clause can do indirectly what a privative clause cannot do directly, this could insert considerable uncertainty into an administrative law. That is, if a statutory appeal clause can preclude or limit the availability of judicial review on questions of fact and mixed fact in law, this result applies, diff oh, sorry, this will in effect accomplish what a privative clause does not. This result applies different interpretive principles to statutory appeal clauses and privative clauses without any principled basis for doing so. And uh, conversely, giving the same weight to legislative intent behind privative clauses would implicitly reshape decades of precedent on the interpretation of privative clauses, creating considerable uncertainty for parties in courts and judicial reviews, and could, in effect, undo much of the certainty this court brought through Vavilov. I'm going to move now to the Attorney General's proposed revised test, which we say balances the legislative intent behind statutory appeal clauses with the rule of law and the role of Section 96 courts. 
we have proposed a revised test because some of the factors in the Strickland test are an awkward fit where a limited appeal is the alternative remedy. And we suggest adding other factors respecting timely and efficient administration of justice to tailor the test to this particular circumstance. Importantly, we say this framework applies similar interpretive principles to privative clauses and statutory appeal clauses. The Attorney General's proposed test has one threshold question, and the remaining four questions would be balanced against each other with no one factor overriding. And just for the court's reference, our proposed revised test is at paragraphs 24 to 26 of our factum. The first question would be whether the applicant has an arguable case. This would be a threshold question, but it would be a low threshold with the burden on the applicant to show an arguable case in the sense of some basis to support their claim. This would be a screening mechanism for obviously unmeritorious claims. And this factor would take into account both legislative intent and the rule of law. Secondly, the courts would look at whether the dispute is adequately dealt with in the statutory appeal or in another forum. It is well established that judicial review, uh, that an, sorry, that an adequate alternative, alternative remedy need not be identical to judicial review. If a question of fact or mixed fact in law could be adequately dealt with through a statutory appeal process, then that process will likely be an adequate alternative remedy. This factor takes into account the legislative intent to designate certain appeal or statutory structures to deal with the matter. The third factor would be if the judicial review and statutory appeal must take place in different forums, would it be just and convenient to hear the judicial review separately? This is a judicial economy or efficiency factor and could come into play, for example, where a statutory appeal goes to the Court of Appeal, but the judicial review must be heard in a provincial superior court. The applicant would be, bear the burden of showing that bifurcating the matter would be just and convenient, and we set out some relevant factors in our factum at paragraph 26C, and I'm not going to go through them just in the interests of time. This factor takes into account both the rule of law and legislative intent. The fourth factor would be whether the applicant has exhausted all internal and statutory remedies. This is based on the principle that judicial review is a remedy of last resort and applicants must generally exhaust all statutory remedies before invoking the jurisdiction of a supervisory section 96 court. If an applicant fails to exhaust all internal and statutory remedies, this should militate against the court exercising discretion to hear the judicial review. And the fifth and final factor would be the impact of the decision on the applicant. So as this court explained in Vavilov, decision makers have a heightened duty of responsive justification, where a decision has a significant impact on an individual's rights, interests, or privileges. If the impact is particularly severe, it may be appropriate for courts to hear the judicial review to ensure that the decision maker meets the bar set by Vavilov. In summary, the test proposed by the Attorney General applies similar interpretive principles to statutory appeal clauses and privative clauses. May I ask this question? You've put forward in your factum and then in your argument certain factors that you say should be taken into account, but what's the starting point? 
um, and I guess on whom is the burden to establish, for example, that there's an arguable case? Um, Justice uh, Martin, the, uh, we say that the burden should be on the respondent to raise the issue. So we say that the um, presumption would always be that a, an applicant or a petitioner in my province could file the judicial review. And if the respondent uh, thinks that there is an adequate alternative remedy, it would be on the respondent to raise that issue. Um, in terms of the first factor specifically, we would say that the burden would be on the applicant to show that they have an arguable case. So I'm just going to uh, wrap up. Um, we say that the factors the Attorney General has proposed pay respectful attention to the fundamental objectives of administrative law and give the courts guidance on exercising their discretion in a principled manner and taking into account the specific circumstances of each case. Subject to any questions, those are my submissions. Thank you very much. Nabila Kereishi. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. The Income Security Advocacy Centre is a specialty legal aid clinic that serves low-income communities across Ontario including social assistance recipients who rely on the Social Benefits Tribunal. Like the Licensing Appeal Tribunal, decisions of the Social Benefits Tribunal can be appealed to the Ontario Divisional Court on questions of law only. My submissions today will focus on one point, that the decision below, if upheld, may detrimentally impact both social assistance recipients and the principle of responsive justification. For our clients, judicial review can mean the difference between food on the table and a roof over your head. This is because social assistance recipients live in deep poverty. A single person living on Ontario Works receives a maximum of just $733 per month to cover the entire cost of shelter, food, clothing and other basic necessities. A single person living with disabilities who relies on the Ontario Disability Support Program receives 1,308 per month. What this means is that state decisions about a person's eligibility for social assistance or the amount of assistance that they're entitled to can have a profound impact on their quality of life. The challenge is that many of these important decisions have been characterized as raising questions of fact or mixed fact in law for which no right of appeal exists. Judicial review is the only review option available. For example, the calculation of an overpayment is considered a question of fact. And overpayments occur when the state says, you received more money than we think you should have and now you have to pay it back. This is a problem that occurs frequently for social assistance recipients. And because overpayments are calculated each month and information can change or be incomplete, there's many opportunities for innocent mistakes to occur. But these overpayment decisions can have a devastating impact on a poor person's life. And that's because they can amount to thousands and often tens of thousands of dollars that a person living in poverty simply cannot afford to pay. So 
If judicial reviews on non-appealable decisions are only heard rarely, a poor person could be left without any meaningful remedy to a decision that significantly affects them. And this happened in uh, Volnyansky, which you can find at paragraph 19, footnote 33 of our factum. In that decision, the Ontario Divisional Court said, we're not going to hear your overpayment judicial review because you should have tried to appeal. But we also wouldn't have heard your appeal anyway, because overpayment calculations are not a question of law. Practically speaking, decisions like this can mean that, say, a single mom gets stuck with a $50,000 overpayment because the tribunal wrongly decided that she was living with her abusive ex-partner over the past decade and failed to declare his income. At a broader level, a restrictive approach to hearing judicial reviews undermines the principle of responsive justification, and this court recently affirmed this important principle in Mason. Now, we recognize that this appeal is about whether or not a judicial review application should be heard and not whether or not an application that was heard was reasonable. But if judicial review applications of non-appealable decisions are rarely heard only because a limited appeal right exists, then administrative actors may rarely be held to the standard of responsive justification. And the consequences are twofold. First, a decision with serious flaws and a serious impact on a person effectively stands by default. And second, we water down incentives for tribunals to comply with their duty to provide reasons consistent with responsive justification. And with the time that I have left, I did want to quickly address um, a question from the panel about whether or not we should consider adopting uh, a new test, a new threshold test or factors um, to decide whether to hear a judicial review. And we would say uh, no and caution the court against that for two reasons. First, um, it's already incredibly challenging to have your judicial review application heard, especially for self-represented and vulnerable applicants. Introducing a new threshold test puts the burden on them um, and introduces a new hurdle for them to jump over. And finally, it's not necessary in light of the existing discretionary bars we have. Thank you. Thank you very much. Ryan Ardy. Good morning, Justices. Uh, bonjour, le juge. I will be presenting the intervener submissions of ACTO, the Advocacy Center for Tenants Ontario. ACTO is a specialty legal clinic that advances tenant interests in law and policy throughout Ontario. My comments this morning will focus on the concurrent appeal and judicial review issue. While all decisions of this honorable court make new law, only some change the infrastructure of our justice system. Vavilov was one such case, and this will certainly be another. Parties and lawyers in the administrative law, administrative law realm, I'm sorry, will have to do things differently once this court speaks on Yatar. ACTO on behalf of Ontario tenants asks that when you do speak, the design you craft take into account the needs of the most vulnerable among us. The Court of Appeals decision below deserves praise for offering practical guidance to justice system users on how to undertake concurrent appeals and judicial review. Whatever your decision, a similarly practical approach would be helpful. Users of the system, especially self-represented parties, 
deserve to know what they can do, how they can do it, and when they should. The clearer the roadmap, the better. One weakness of the practical guidance offered by the Court of Appeal was the omission of self-represented parties. The envisioned solutions, a possible practice direction from the divisional court and or agreements between counsel and procedure, take for granted that parties will be represented by lawyers. Unfortunately, many users of our justice system, perhaps especially in administrative law, must act for themselves. Turning to the specific Ontario residential tenancies context, ACTO supports the availability of judicial review as a supplement to a statutory right of appeal. The law in our province is that tenants seeking to challenge eviction orders from the landlord and tenant board have a restricted right of appeal. They can appeal to the divisional court, but only on a question of law. Consequently, no tenant would only use a judicial review application to challenge an eviction order because exercising their right of appeal triggers a statutory stay of eviction. Without that stay, few, if any, eviction orders could be challenged because the eviction would be enforced by the time the court heard the appeal. Uh, it is important here to note that there are some decisions, notably those concerning rent geared to income housing subsidies, which is the main type of housing subsidy for low income people we have in Ontario. Uh, those decisions can only be judicially reviewed because they're governed by a different statute. But in a case where a tenant, for example, lost their subsidy, their arrears of rent ballooned as a result of the loss of subsidy and they were being evicted on that basis, a concurrent proceeding would be unavoidable. They'd have to judicially review the loss of subsidy while also appealing the eviction order that results from that. At divisional court, many tenant appeals will run into the question of law bar. Our factum provides a brief survey of the discord on this point at the divisional court level. It's especially challenging for self-represented parties. If Canadian lawyers and judges continue to grapple with the question of what constitutes a question of law, it cannot be intuitive for self-represented people. The addition of a judicial review application therefore would allow parties to cover all their bases. Factual or mixed fact and law elements of the decision could be challenged that way. It doesn't mean collapsing the distinction between appeals and judicial review. As this court made explicit in Vavilov, the two different types of challenge to a decision attract different standards of review. Just briefly, in the interest of time, on the two related concerns of judicial economy and opening the floodgates, I think both are misplaced. Clear procedure will reduce the workload for all concerned, including judges and also participants. As for the concern raised by the Attorney General of Ontario that lawyers might begin filing judicial reviews as a matter of course, I would suggest that the history in the lower courts since, uh, since both the ATAR decisions suggests otherwise. It's not something which is ballooned and a rebuttable presumption against GR won't improve access to justice. It's just another hurdle. In closing, I would say the vulnerable people who attempt to challenge administrative tribunal decisions always face a steep challenge. They have to translate their subjective, intimate feelings about a case like not wanting to be evicted not wanting to lose an affordable unit in a difficult housing market. They have to translate those feelings into unfamiliar legal language. Sometimes they can find a lawyer to help them, more often they have to do it themselves, and the approach we recommend will give them the best chance of success. Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Paul Daly.
Good morning, uh, Justices. I have two general points, one about the novelty of the approach of the court below, one about the content of the core superior court function of judicial review, and two specific points about how this court should approach limited rights of appeal. First, the approach below. Uh, taking a passage from this court's decision in Strickland divorced from its context, the Court of Appeal held there is a general residual discretion to refuse a remedy based on its view of legislative intent and the comprehensiveness of the administrative process. As Justice Martin observed earlier, however, Strickland dealt with a problem unique to a federal system, the existence of two plausible forums for conducting judicial review, and its balancing exercise was entirely directed to that unusual choice between superior court and federal court. Strickland does not stand for the proposition that there is some free-floating residual judicial discretion to refuse a remedy for unlawfulness over and above the well-established principled grounds that already exist. The resulting problem, and the reason I agree with Justice Jamal that in crafting its reasons in this case, this court can't really avoid considering the constitutional foundations of judicial review, is that the court thereby permitted the legislature to do indirectly what it would have been unconstitutional to do directly, that is preclude judicial review. Put simply, if the legislature itself had relied on the factors identified by the Court of Appeal to enact a privative clause, this would have been unconstitutional. This leads to my second general point about the core powers we can of decide the superior the, uh, courts. Mr. Daly, we can decide the case on statutory intent without saying that uh, the contrary interpretation would be unconstitutional, though. You accept that? I think the I, I think you can get a long way, uh, perhaps, without um, without uh, directly dealing with um, the constitutional foundations. Your observation was that you might brush up against it indirectly. Um, I do, for my part, find it difficult to imagine how you can uh, avoid um, some commentary on the uh, the constitutional foundations of judicial review, if only because of the way the court below approached the issue. But is your point, Mr. Daly, that one that bears on on uh, the preclusion of judicial review by legislation, which I guess is one abstract idea that doesn't present itself plainly here, or is it that it's the preclusion of judicial review by judicial discretion that we should say is unconstitutional? And if so, wouldn't that be rather, rather a big, big step for us to make on the basis of what's before well, us. Well, I'm, I'm certainly not suggesting, although I know the respondents think I'm suggesting this, but I'm not suggesting there's anything unconstitutional about judicial discretion and the well-established uh, discretionary grounds for withholding a remedy, which are, are, are principled. Um, the, the problem with the analysis of the court below is the reliance on legislative intent to develop a new ground uh, for uh, withholding a remedy. And in describing uh, why that um, is wrong, it's going to be difficult, I suspect, for this court to, to avoid uh, getting into the constitutional foundations of judicial review. Um, and those constitutional foundations, Justice Rowe put it very well, uh, his whole question has always been, was the authority given to a decision maker properly used? And historically, that has included uh, review of jurisdictional facts. And uh, Justice Gleason, in her careful analysis in Best Buy, uh, very well explained how court scrutiny of factual error has been recognized as a component of judicial review of administrative action. 
So in terms of specifics, if this court does make comments on the constitutional foundations of judicial review, the implication is that any legislative provision which might directly or indirectly uh, through uh, judicial discretion or otherwise preclude the superior court from exercising its core functions should be uh, narrow. Um, this is the point made in paragraph 52 of Vavilov. It's how the federal courts have historically treated section 18.5 of the Federal Courts Act and it underpinned the Federal Court of Appeals analysis in Public Service Alliance of Canada where it read preclusive language narrowly including in respect to factual issues to preserve the core function of the superior courts. But you, um, you, you, include, this... you include one of the core functions of the superior court though uh, as review for reasonableness. Is that fair? Yes, that's fair, uh, Justice Jamal. I think the, um, but, but the, the, the basis for that is the historical basis of judicial review, which, is, which has evolved over the decades and centuries and now does include analysis of the reasonableness of all uh, factual and legal constraints that bear on a decision. Um, thank you very much. Thank you very much. Yes, go ahead. Thank you. The answer to procedural barriers is not the removal of rights. Appellate and judicial review are fundamentally different proceedings and a limited right to a statutory appeal is not an adequate alternative remedy to judicial review. On behalf of the Social Planning Council and the Aboriginal Council of Winnipeg, my submissions today will focus on two points. First, Restricting access to judicial review amplifies existing barriers experienced by marginalized litigants in holding administrative decision makers accountable. Second, in Manitoba, concurrent statutory appeals and judicial reviews are practically unworkable for those same marginalized litigants. You have our submissions about the administrative landscape surrounding social benefits in Manitoba at paragraphs 14 through 19 of our factum. And what I'd like to emphasize for you this morning is that for vulnerable individuals, their lives are already intertwined with administrative law in some of its most intrusive forms. The average person is far more likely to appear before and be impacted by an administrative tribunal than a court. Tribunals like the Social Services Appeal Board, for example, are one of the only mechanisms that marginalized individuals have to hold the state accountable in making decisions about their access to social benefits and ability to meet their most basic needs. And yet in Manitoba, if the Social Services Appeal Board errs, these individuals can only appeal if they can demonstrate to Manitoba's Court of Appeal that the issue on appeal is a question of law that doesn't have any constitutional dimensions and is important enough to attract the attention and resources of that court. These vulnerable litigants already face a multitude of procedural hurdles to say nothing of the seemingly less important questions of law, any questions of mixed fact and law, or any purely factual errors that will be wholly insulated from judicial scrutiny if a limited statutory appeal is an adequate alternative remedy to judicial review. That will be their reality if this court endorses a broad application of the lower court's views in this case, that judicial review will only be appropriate in rare cases when limited statutory appeals are provided. 
but a limited statutory appeal shouldn't oust one's access to judicial review. The characterization of judicial review as rare or exceptional in these types of cases, whether as a rebuttable presumption or otherwise, flattens the court's exercise of discretion by presupposing the outcome. It does exactly what the court cautioned against in Strickland. It puts a general rule in front of a contextual balance of convenience analysis meant to assess not only whether an adequate alternative remedy is actually available, but also the suitability and the appropriateness of judicial review in the circumstances. How does restricting a person's access to judicial review improve their ability to access justice? We say it doesn't. What it does do is truncate judicial review to where it is meaningless for the most vulnerable litigants. And where there are concurrent appellate and review proceedings, this court will have to grapple with the reality of those existing bifurcated proceedings. The Manitoba Court of Appeal in Smith and the Appeal Commission has recently referred to these situations as, quote, a clarion call for law reform by the Manitoba legislature, end quote. There's no question that for vulnerable Manitobans, this is a problem of the government's making. But any solution, judicial, legislative, or otherwise, cannot be built on the backs of the most marginalized litigants. Thank you for your time. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Please be seated. Mr. Blumenthal. Yes, good morning. I appear for the Respondent License Appeal Tribunal, which I'll be referring to today as LAT. Uh, acronyms are just part of uh, our, our life at tribunals. Um, I'll be splitting our allotted time with uh, uh, my colleague, uh, Ms. Crystal. Um, in the limited time uh, that I have before you today, my goals are in fact very modest. And I just wish to, I will focus very, uh, very, uh, focus on broader important administrative law issues that were central to the decisions in the courts below and the discretionary nature of judicial review and the decisions of the court in both that in the, of this court in Vavlov and Strickland. My colleague, Ms. Crystal, will focus on the, uh, in a more in-depth manner, the Strickland two-part balancing 
test as it relates to the License Appeal Tribunal Act, uh, and, and she will also address the constitutional issue. The License Appeal Tribunal, or LAT, is part of an organization called Tribunals Ontario. It is a cluster of 13 tribunals and boards in Ontario. And there, are no, there is no other organization uh, in Ontario that has more statutory appeals and judicial reviews in the divisional court than our organization. And I say this uh, because our experience post Yatar, or post Vavilov for that matter, is that we have seen, as has the Forestry Appeal Commission, the intervener, an increase in this dual approach to uh, bringing dual, uh, an, an appeal and a JR simultaneously. And we are all concerned within the tribunals about the systemic issues that were highlighted by the divisional court that are associated with duplicative proceedings. So our submissions generally are that the issue here in the appeal is about what was decided below. And that was how the divisional court should exercise its discretion on whether to undertake judicial review in light of the restricted appeal clause in section 11 of the LAT Act. And in our respectful submission, there is no legal error in the Court of Appeals decision for what I would say are a number of fundamental administrative law reasons. These uh, administrative law reasons are what the Court of Appeal referred to as the realities of judicial review. I'm not well, how sure that's about, the best how about, how about the precedence of this court? I mean, it seems to me that in Vavilov, we made it absolutely clear that you could have both judicial review and uh, uh, a limited right of appeal. And you're telling us, well, maybe. Uh, that, that is correct. And, and the, the, the problem with respect, when you said, the court said that this is what you could do, it did not give a great deal of insight as to how to do it. And this is what the Court of Appeal, in my respectful submission, and the courts below, attempted to figure out, to put the proverbial you know, square peg in the round hole, as it were, uh, in terms of it being able to make this work. And so when they say that these are the realities of judicial review, you know, it may not be the, the best descriptor, but it certainly is, in my respectful submission, perhaps described as the hard truths but of judicial review. But you accept that uh, Vavilov holds that appeals and judicial review are fundamentally different. They, they, they are, are fundamentally indeed. different. So when the legislature <clears throat> says an appeal from a decision of the tribunal relating to a matter under the Insurance Act may be made on a question of law only, when it says, when it speaks about this fundamentally different beast, an appeal, how can that be taken to mean anything? positive or negative about the fundamentally different beast of a judicial review? Perhaps, uh, if, I, if I understand your question, are you, are you suggesting that, in fact, it stands alone by itself? Well, uh, I'm not sure what I mean, but <laughs> to answer your question, but all I'm really getting to is uh, the, how can it, how can it, you, you're defending the decision of the Court of Appeal. I'm not sure how one can read the statutory provision as creating a presumption that judicial review is now exceptional, rare. Uh, it is still extraordinary because that is its historical nature, but it isn't rare. It is still a matter of discretion. And an appeal provision just says you've got a right 
on a question of law, you've got a right. That's not a matter of discretion, not a matter of the grace of the king uh, for the writs, the king's courts. That's a matter of right. And that's going to be subject to correctness review. That's fundamentally different than saying you have presumptively no right to prerogative remedies under a standard of reasonableness. Well, I don't think that's what the court said below, that you, you don't presumptively have a right to judicial review. The, the court below uh, said unequivocally that judicial review is always available. And that is consistent with the, the legislation in Ontario. Discretion is going to be exercised presumptively to, uh, I, I, you're correct, I misspoke. The, the, ex the discretion is going to be exercised presumptively to uh, refuse, on a discretionary basis, refuse review. So it becomes a judicial privative clause, effectively. It becomes a presumptive privilege clause through discretion. Well, I think you're, 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 you're asking a conclusion, not a question, in some respects. It's not clear in every instance whether or not it will presumptively result in a judicial review not being pursued. It is by definition based on Strickland and provisions in Strickland, and what this court said is that it is inherently a, a, balancing, a balancing of different uh, factors that go into it, one being the adequate. How is it even pro probably, I'm sorry, Your Honor. My, sorry, my question is how is it even probative? The Strickland balancing? Statutory appeal to qu on questions of law. How is it even probative? Well, it, it, if you accept the underlying, the, the fundamental underlying pillars of, of Vavilov, is that it's an issue of legislative intent. It reflects the legislature's intent in terms of what should be permitted in these circumstances. That it is a question of law. So judicial review, as we said, is is always available in Ontario. That is. Uh, uh, can be, in my view, undeniable based on the provisions of the Judicial Review Procedures Act and the discretionary nature uh, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the, the legislation. But the so, legislative intent uh, referred to in Vavilov and regarding this uh, statutory, limited uh, statutory right of appeal, uh, the legislative intent, we did not see in Vavilov that in having a statutory uh, appeal on question of law was to limit judicial review. To the contrary, what transpires from Vavilov was that in uh, adopting a statutory right of appeal on questions of law, the intent was to uh, permit those questions to be reviewed on a higher standard. I mean correctness. That's correct. Well, well, I think it was actually more than that as well. It signaled, uh, you know, as the court said in Vavilov, you know, an enhanced role for the court, but also, you know, a respect for uh, the institutional design choices made by the legislature in that, in, in, you know, by in enabling that kind of legislation. So I think there's a, a multitude of, of reasons that you can pull out of Vavilov about what appeal clauses are and are not. You know, uh, and certainly in relation to uh, to, judici uh, to judicial review. So, you know, the appeal mechanisms, and, and the concern in, in many respects uh, is if you were to read, you know, uh, you know, I think Justice Rowe said earlier that these these two principles in Vavilov, of respect for legislative intent, and the uh, rule of law considerations in Vavilov, are, are in fact complementary to one another. But at some point in time through the exercise of discretion, 
and through the Strickland factors that, that uh, have been set out, at some point in time, one is going to give. And in this particular case, whether you call it a rare case or an exceptional case, the court did what uh, the courts below did with that particular uh, balancing. And the reality is, as, as a number of appeal courts have, have already said uh, post Yatar, uh, is that in many instances, you know, the, again, it may be the reality is, or the hard truth is, is that the appeal clause is, may be more than adequate to address the concerns that uh, an appellant or an, an, an applicant may have in wanting to uh, go to court. And so my friend... On questions of law. Well, my, my friend, Ms. Crystal, is going to explain this in, in more detail. But as we know, uh, many factual questions and many questions can have extricable questions of law and many factual questions can be characterized as questions of law. And so the, the question in many respects that, that this court may wish to consider is, well, what is left at the end of the proverbial day that is going to be sought for judicial review? Can and Vavilov, and in, and in many respects, you know, the questions are, uh, you know, is it a reweighing of the evidence? Is it, you know, discussing factual findings? Vavilov was quite clear in my respectful submission, and in fact, Dunsmuir was as well, but that's not the fair of reviewing courts. Dunsmuir said the deference is usually, is autom almost automatically accorded to the questions of fact, discretion, and policy, and Vavilov doesn't change that. I Vavilov guess I'm, well, I, I, I'm, I'm still back on Justice Jamal's question, to be honest. And I'm looking at the reasons of the Court of Appeal and par paragraph 45. I, I would have thought that the legislature's decision to limit recourse to the courts through the, a scheme that speaks to the question of law says nothing about questions of fact or mixed questions of fact and law. So I was, when, when, when the Court of Appeals says the legislature is right, they can limit access to the courts through the statutory court of, uh, uh, avenue of appeal. What exactly do you take it to mean when, when they say it is inconsistent with led the legislature's decision to limit the right of appeal to questions of law alone to then hold that the remedy of judicial review is all-encompassing. If they're thought of as a, on separate paths, and that the judicial review bears on questions of fact and mixed questions, what, what's, what's the problem? Well, it's, uh, thank you for the question. That's, in fact, on page 10 of my notes, <laughs> so I'm jumping ahead. But the, uh, you know, really what that is, the, I, in fact, the, the submission is I actually think that is very much respectful of this court's uh, concerns and discussions about the role of uh, appeal mechanisms in Vavilov and heightened responsibility, you know, a heightened role for courts in, in, in these kinds of appeals. Um, and, and the, the uh, I apologize. And that, the, that it's, in fact, uh, in many respects, respectful of the twin themes in, 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 um, in Vavilov, of the, of the need for the rule of law and justification and for um, uh, respect for legislative intent. I think that, that, that specific uh, 
sentence that you've focused on is reflective of that. At some point in time, the court had to decide where on the balance, where on the balancing this is going to fall. And they've done that after having considered the adequacy of the alternative remedy in this particular case, and also the other side of the balance, which was uh, the need to consider the statutory scheme and what, uh, the, what we would but call... But there's, there's, there's two questions that I'm not saying you've mixed them up, but they're getting mixed up here. One is, does the citizen have a right to seek judicial review and have a hearing on the merits, which it seems to me is, is really in the nature of a legal right. You can call it discretionary if you like. But it, it, I think it's settled now that, you know, you, you get your day in court. Uh, it would be extraordinary to say, uh, well, maybe what the Ontario Court of Appeal is saying is some days you don't get your day in court. But the second question is, fine, you're here saying that you want uh, the exercise of one of the prerogative writs. Uh, we have a discretion uh, as to whether or not we grant re your remedy and we think uh, it's premature, and therefore we're going to deny it. Basically, if you want to uh, advance your interests, go pursue the uh, appeal mechanism. Or you come here on the basis of some fraud or some unlawful act, and, and therefore you present yourself without clean hands, and we're not going to aid you in this. But those relate to whether the remedy is granted as opposed to whether the matter is to be heard. And the Ontario Court of Appeals seems to have done something extraordinary by saying, or maybe it's the divisional court, but anyway, the two things have gotten mixed up. One is, is your, is your uh, matter to be heard at all versus we now hearing your matter, it is our view that there is some reason why we should not give you an adjudication on the merits, for example, prematurity. I don't know if I've made myself clear. Well, I'm now past my time, unfortunately. So I will just say the following. I don't think the Court of Appeals decision is unclear on that point at all. They have they've clearly laid down, as of the divisional court, that, that judicial review is available in all circumstances. The question and the discretionary question is, and this is consistent with, what go, with the decisions in Ontario, about there's discretion as to whether or not it'll be undertaken. I would just, I'd have to stop on that because I'm already sort of entrenching on my, my colleague's time. Thank you very much. Um, today, uh, with, uh, with the time for the lat uh, remaining, I'll be focusing on the two sides of the Strickland um, balancing test, the adequacy of the alternative remedy and the need to respect legislative intent. Um, if time permits, I'll briefly address the constitutional question. Um, but before I get into that, I just wanted to add um, a few comments to the questions that have, uh, have been raised. Uh, uh, Justice Rowe, with respect to uh, your comment about the um, potential conflation of whether a remedy is granted and whether the um, judicial review is heard at all. Um, in Strickland, it was certainly about whether the judicial review would be heard at all. Um, that's at paragraph 42. Um, 
page 49 in our condensed book. Um, the cases identify a number of considerations relevant to deciding whether an alternative remedy or form is adequate so as to justify a discretionary refusal to hear a judicial review application. So they, it, it, the discretionary nature of judicial review in our submission is both about... No, but I put to you that that's a semantic difference because you, you, someone has to say, look, there's no alternative remedy. You, you actually have to engage. It doesn't sort of... How does the court become aware of it unless the submissions are made? I mean, you have to, you have to sort of say, well, what's your point in, in saying that uh, this shouldn't proceed? Someone has to explain it. So in, in effect, you've entered into a, a consideration of it uh, as opposed to saying, uh, you know, you, you can't even file the writ. I, yes, I, I would agree. You can file the, the application for judicial review. Um, it would be that the reviewing court may raise the issue on its own initiative or it may be res, uh, raised by the respondent to say, here the right of appeal on a question of law is an adequate alternative remedy. Um, this court should decline to exercise its discretion to uh, hear the application for judicial review, and then that would be based on the, um, the Strickland analysis. Well, I know the Strickland analysis and the, and the components of it. Um, the question I have, though, is, is that on the reading of the facts of Strickland, it was a question of where should a full judicial review take place, a superior court or in the federal court. Um, how does that apply to a different issue, which is should a full judicial review take place given that there is an alternative procedure? There, it seems to me that that's the threshold that we need to be addressing first. Uh, thank you, uh, Justice Martin, for the question. Um, the, yes, the facts in Strickland were different. It was about a judicial review as compared to the alternative remedy of a family law uh, proceeding in superior court. Here we're comparing a judicial review with a um, right of appeal on a question of law alone. Um, but the fact similarity in both cases is that the remedy that's being, that was being requested on judicial review um, was not available in the alternative in the alternative forum. So a, a, um, the declaration that was requested in Strickland, it was assumed for the purpose of that case. It was not available in the alternative forum, the family law proceeding. Um, uh, and, and that's why this court in Strickland said you need to look beyond the specifics of the alternative remedy and comparing what you get here, what you get there. And also there's the second side to this balancing, which is what is the legislative intent and is judicial, re judicial review appropriately respectful of the statutory scheme. Right, but the, the, the result of the use of Strickland here is that there is no review of a mixed question of law or fact or of fact. The result of Strickland, if you in, our current situation is because of the broad nature of an appeal on a question of law. And I'll get into that um, if I have time, um, but there are many, the most serious types of factual errors can be raised 
um, as extricable questions of law. And because I'm interested in, in, in learning about that, I'm very interested how a factual finding can be elevated to an extricable question of law. I'm very interested. Okay, and I, I will make sure to answer that in, uh, in just a moment. Um, so when the, when the remedy that you actually get on the appeal is balanced against the legislature's intent in designing a statutory scheme which restricted appeals to questions of law, and that, that has to mean something, the result is that it weighs against judicial review, likely in most cases. And the courts below have described that as a rare case or exceptional circumstances, but it's just the nature of this, this, this right of appeal and this statutory scheme that when you balance them together, usually it will weigh against judicial review. That's not to say that judicial review is precluded, right? It well, just, it, yeah. it, it's just in rare circumstances or exceptional. On that well, note, um, your friend uh, described legislative intent as a design choice. And um, then you add to that the qualifier of only exercised in terms of JR or judicial review in rare circumstances. How does that sit with different design choices in different jurisdictions in Canada? How can you use that sweeping qualifier of rare when design choices are pretty distinctive in different areas of the country? What I would say that the, the principle that applies across the country is the Strickland test, right? which requires the balancing of what you get from the alternative remedy and what, um, how do you respect the statutory scheme. Now, that, the way that that balances out will not necessarily be the same under every statutory scheme because Strickland requires that the reviewing court consider the, the respecting the statutory scheme. Um, so I, I would not suggest that it's necessarily a one-size-fits-all approach across the country, but that it fits within the, the framework of the, um, of the Strickland balancing test. You, you were going to answer Justice Cote, and I'll let you do that. But just to follow up on the line of questions, I'm not, not sure I understand the way in which you're using the word discretion discretionary in the way the Court of Appeal did. And I'm starting with Strickland, paragraph 37, the reference to David Mullen's famous article about the discretionary nature of judicial review. And, and this link back to history is made that two of my colleagues have made. Judicial review by way of the old prerogative writs has always been understood to be discretionary. This means that even if the applicant makes out a case for review on the merits, the reviewing court has an overriding discretion to refuse release. Is that, is, are you, you're using discretion in that way when we're talking about rare cases? Are we talking about getting in the door? Or are these rare cases where relief is refused? The question as to how, uh, whether relief will be refused or not. Where, where, what are we talking about? I'm sorry to go get so basic, but I'm, I, I kind of lost you in your answers. So in terms of getting in the door, if the door is filing an application, yes, you can file an application. Um, but as with all 
discretionary bars to judicial review. They can be raised as a preliminary issue before the reviewing courts hears the merits of the judicial review and considers the reasonableness, um, generally speaking, of the decision. So yes, Strickland itself does not say rare cases, but I would, I would wonder, even in the Strickland fact scenario, if asked, well, how often can you do a judicial review um, when there's an alternative family law proceeding and let's say you want a declaration of a different regulation, I think the answer to that would also likely be rare because when you apply the factors to a particular provision and a particular statutory scheme, the result is that, well, normally the right of appeal will provide an adequate alternative remedy and the legislature's decision to make um, the appeal restricted to questions of law has to be given some meaning. But can I, I guess what I'm having difficulty is this. Strickland's been around for eight years. It's always been understood that, well, the kinds of factors particular to a case that Mr. Dewart set out are the kinds of factors that are taken into account because in a particular case it's not appropriate. There will be some cases, as in Strickland itself, where it is a broader issue, but that was a highly unusual case. So what I hear you asking us to say is that the mere fact that there is now a statutory, a restricted statutory right of appeal to questions of, of law, have recalibrate the entire Strickland approach such that that weighs heavily now against allowing judicial review on reasonableness for facts or mixed law and facts. And how do we get there based on Vavilov, which made it very clear that a legislative intent for a limited right of appeal does not affect the right for judicial review. So where does this see change come from? I would submit that it's not a recalibration of Strickland. It's an application of Strickland to the context of a Okay, of a so let's right just start there for a moment. There's a limited right of appeal. The jurisdiction of the courts was ousted so that there's exclusive jurisdiction in the tribunal, as in most tribunals. That design choice that you're talking about is common to most tribunals. So does that mean that for most tribunals with a limited right of appeal, we are now looking at saying presumptively, or sorry, only in rare cases are you entitled to bring judicial review on whether the facts is found are reasonable? I think unless there's something significantly different from another, in another okay. statute, well, that, that, would, that, that would apply. Um, some of this has come out of Vavilov, as since Vavilov there has been an increase that we've noticed, some of the interveners have noticed, in the number of parallel proceedings, appeals, and judicial reviews. So what's happening now is that the courts are dealing with it, which they have not had to deal with too often before, as, uh, as parties simply stuck to their appeals. So, you can say that a statutory appeal on a question of law gives the citizen the same remedy than a judicial review on a question of fact or a mixed question of law and fact. 
Absolutely, and I have two, uh, two minutes remaining before, or a minute and a half before I need to, uh, to pass it over to, uh, to TD. Um, it's when you have an appeal on a question of law, um, you have, of course, questions of statutory interpretation, procedural fairness, reasonable apprehension of bias, um, but it's also well accepted that certain types of factual errors can give rise to a question of law. And this is actually a fairly broad range of errors. They're outlined by the Divisional Court in Justice Christensen's decision um, at paragraph 28. But for example, if a finding of fact is based on uh, no evidence, that is well accepted to be a question of law, solely irrelevant evidence, um, an irrational inference, um, failure to consider evidence that um, the law requires the tribunal to consider, failure to consider an element of the legal test. So all of these types of errors rise to the level um, in the jurisprudence of a question of law. And I would submit that um, this covers the majority of the grounds, the ground um, for what would be considered to be, um, to be unreasonable. And, and what about um, a limita uh, an assessment of whether a limitation has been met. How do you classify that then? As a, um, as a broad question, it's a question of mixed fact and law. The question is whether in reaching that conclusion of mixed fact and law, there have been any of the types of errors I described along the way, right? Did the tribunal fail to consider a, um, a factor that it requires to be considered, et cetera. Unfortunately, that is my time. I would rely on my factum for the section on the legislative intent um, portion um, and with respect to the statutory scheme, which, which we did not have time to address. Thank you. Chief Justice, Justices, TD agrees that judicial review was available to Ms. Yatar. This case is not about whether the legislature may preclude, limit, or oust judicial review. Judicial review was available, and Ms. Yatar, in fact, brought both a statutory appeal and a judicial review. This case is, instead, about how a court may properly exercise its discretion not to, not to undertake or to undertake a judicial review. And in my submissions today, we'll focus on the exercise of the discretion by the Divisional Court and, and the factors that did drive the exercise of that discretion and whether they were appropriate. My colleague, Mr. Goldenberg, will address the alternative submission, which is the reasonableness of the LET's decision should this court decide to undertake judicial review. There has been some convergence between the positions of the parties. The parties do agree that judicial review is available. The parties do agree that judicial review is discretionary. The question is whether or not the factors which drove the exercise of that discretion in this particular case were appropriate. And the starting point for this court is that the exercise of discretion is reviewable on a highly deferential basis. The question for this court is whether or not the factors which animated the divisional court's decision were correct or were appropriate, and then, and then you, you uh, 
you give a margin of appreciation. The now, question if, if they've fundamentally misunderstood our jurisprudence, I think we're allowed to intervene. In my respectful submission, they applied your decision in Strickland. And in my respectful submission, that was entirely in keeping with passages of Vavilov which have not yet been highlighted for this court and which I might just take a moment to do. And so in my respectful submission, the parts of Vavilov which this court should have regard to begin with paragraph 24, where the court speaks in standard of review, but says judicial review, I'm reading at the bottom of paragraph 24, Judicial review is protected by section 96, but it goes on to say, legislatures cannot shield administration decision-making from curial scrutiny entirely. And I pause to say, they therefore do have some choices to make with respect to that. The second passage that I would take the court to is paragraph 36, where um, the court, uh, the presence of a statutory appeal mechanism from an administrative decision is, is one way in which the court may, through constitutional limits, uh, insulate administrative decisions from judicial interference. And so again, it's not an unfettered ability, but it is clearly an ability to channel the way in which judicial oversight is to happen. The next that uh, my friend refers to is paragraph 45 of Vavilov, and they, this is the paragraph that speaks about, that this court has, has raised. Yeah, but there's a fundamental difference between saying, you know what, this looks like a pretty good internal appellate review regime, versus did the appellate review go completely off the rails in its, in its proper justification process or its handling of the evidence? I mean, they're not the same thing, and to say that we'd contemplate saying to citizens there's an excellent mechanism here it's too bad it crashed and burned in your case see you later but the factors in strickland with respect address exactly the question that you were you were posing in a different context but they address exactly those questions they look at legislative intent and i would not submit to this court that simply the language of the statutory appeal, the limited statutory appeal mechanism is determinative. But as Justice Kassira said, there's a very particular regime at play here and a very particular set of choices that were made that are given effect that the court had regard to. The second is the breadth of the reconsideration right, which was meaningful in here. It's a full review on a correctness basis with respect to questions of fact. Then we turn to third, the, the natures of the error alleged, and that is your question, Justice Rowe, in terms of, of what are we really saying went wrong here. And I think you've heard a couple of submissions from my friend on that. My, friend, my friends have spoken about bias, the lack of independence of this review. Well, that's a question of law. If there's an argument to be made about the bias of this tribunal, it has not been put forward, and that's a question of law that would be captured by the appeal mechanism. If the next argument that was put forward is whether or not the form was attached to that January letter, well, that's the kind of factual review that Vavilov says, even on a judicial review, you would not get into. That's paragraph 125. That's reweighing the evidence. 
and that is, and the, this court has said, even on a judicial review, we don't embark on that so, kind of. Uh, to uh, contest the, a reconsideration decision in this case, if the basis of my request for reconsideration is an error of fact or a mix of question of fact and law. And so, in my respectful submission, if it's an agree, it's the kinds of categories of egregious error that I've talked about that it is captured in the question of law. Those are not the kinds of egregious errors that are being raised here. And that is where the court in the divisional court here exercised its discretion, looking at the nature of the question that was raised, looking at the legislative context, the breadth of the reconsideration provision that that had already been undertaken, that a full appeal of law was also undertaken in parallel, and thought that in these circumstances, it was not appropriate can to I, burden the system with a second procedure. Can I ask you to answer my question? What is it about this particular regime that um, would result in uh, a, a determination that it should only be, judicial re review should only be, um, provide a remedy in rare cases? Uh, and I'm, I mean, reconsideration, which, you know, uh, by the same adjudicator, that's fairly common. Um, limited appeal, we've got that. What is it about this particular regime that wouldn't apply to most? So this regime was overhauled in 2016, and there's no dispute between the parties about this. This regime was overhauled because the courts, respectfully, in Ontario, were said to be part of the problem with respect to backlog and delay. And so a particular regime is put into place for consumer protection, the value that we move through the system faster, and there is a whole series of changes that were put into place. And the statute, this limited statutory appeal is one part of that, but there are a host of other changes that were put into place. And it's the balance of, we have no fault insurance in Ontario. We have a lot of claims, we have to process them efficiently and that means that we have to have finality for the way in which some things are adjudicated and that that in my respectful submission taken with the very broad reconsideration right which is essentially a correctness review leads to it being appropriate for the divisional court to consider that legislative intent when saying it would be it would be going against it would not be giving effect to that intent and, I'm, and I might add, I'm not seeking to defend the rare or exceptional. I'm saying this is an exercise of discretion that was entitled to be made in the nature of the error that was being raised. They underwent the full hearing. They were fully aware of the Ms. nature Ms. of the error. Ms. Lonsdale, what would be, because their claim is that the reconsideration decision involves an irrational chain of analysis, right? That's fundamentally what it is, that the reasons don't... Uh, factually explain um, the basis of the denial of benefits. What would, if that isn't something that would fall within a, you don't want to use the word exceptional, but whatever it is, the limited class of cases that would be subject to judicial review, what is it exactly that can be subject? Maybe I can ask the question that way. What is it that's going to be subject to judicial review on the Court of Appeal, Divisional Court, and your version of, of what's left? It is difficult to imagine a very pressing issue that would not be, be present, uh, not raised in the, the appeal, but I would look at bias. I would look at whether or not 
There was interference in the adjudicative process. Um, there were very good reasons put here, and there are, I heard your question, Justice Jamal, that it was irrational to talk about the reconsideration process as an adequate alternative remedy, but there was a full contested hearing on this issue in the first place, and then there was a second challenge to certain factual findings through the reconsideration process. It is a very robust factual finding process. And so in my respectful submission, they clearly, the argument about whether or not the form was attached to the January letter, I say is not the category of, of matters that ought to be considered. I can see that my friend has a stronger argument that it, if he is arguing, and my, Mr. Goldenberg will address, the rationality of the decision that that is something that could be addressed. What happens if it was demonstrably false and Mr. Gleason had stood up and said, here are the, here are the documents, the form isn't there? So, even then, it wouldn't be subject to judicial review, even though it's demonstrably false. That falls into the uh, class of cases that, well, you've had your day, and uh, we're gonna have, you're going to have to take that, because that's all the justice that the system can give you. Um, if, a, if the document was demonstrably false, I think there are two remedies for that. First, that would have been raised on the reconsideration process, and, and that is indeed one of, one of the things that it could have addressed. No such no such issue was raised. Second, that I think would fall into the category of error that would be captured by an appeal on a question of law. But if it was not, then, then the court would be, then, then it would be up to the parties to raise that issue. There is a right to file a judicial review. And so the question is whether or not the court would be asked to exercise its discretion if that was the argument, and if the court would exercise its discretion not to hear that case. Indeed, the discretion is the right channel in the funnel because it permits the court to intervene when it is necessary to do so. Did the Cunningham report deal with the um, availability of judicial review or just as Mr. Gleason said, discuss the streamlining at the beginning and, and moving it out of courts generally? I do not recall that it specifically discussed judicial review. It, it proceeded I think the best way to understand that in my respectful submission, judicial review is always available. It is a bedrock principle. It's there and codified in the JRPA. The question was channeling this particular review process and, and very dis deliberate decisions were made about that. A different court might make a different decision based on different issues being raised. But on this very factual issue, that was the decision, the exercise of discretion. And okay. the factors were appropriately listed in our respectful submission. All right, so, so given that the, the, everyone accepts that judicial review is always available, um, it, it seems to me that when we're factoring in, what, what value is given then to a limited um, right of appeal when we're factoring that in, and it, even if we're looking at strict... It just seems to me that the, um, you know, so much of administrative law in decades gone by was limiting privative clauses, how to deal with them, how to restrict their scope, etc. And really, what you're inviting us to do is imply a privative clause by a grant of a limited right of appeal. And doesn't that, I mean, that just strikes me as an odd way to be interpreting legislative intent. So in my respectful submission, that's not the invitation that we're making because 
the, what we're asking this court, I'm asking this court to uphold the decision below, but it, what we're asking this court to uphold as a matter of principle is that the judicial review is discretionary and the factors that were set out by the divisional court were appropriate and legislative intent was a key driver in Vavilov. It was, a, it was the key reason, respect for legislative intent, that the courts had not fully taken that on board, was the key thing that turned that case. It cannot now be an improper factor. It's not that it's, it's an improper factor. It's how do we um, mine or discern a legislative intent? Um, and are we prepared to go and apply a privative clause um, if the statement is just, you get this, why should we then say, and it means you also have a restriction on that? So the court may not be prepared to go that far. The court may only be prepared to uphold, and I say it should, the exercise of discretion. And it may not be prepared to go so far as to say that the rare exceptional language is appropriate. It may not be prepared to go so far as to say that there should be a presumption. In my respectful submission, if this court does conclude that there are structural reasons in this regime, that, that in this particular statutory regime, that lead that to being the right result in a number of cases, then it is helpful to enunciate a presumption. But otherwise, these are the, the, we've, the Strickland factors were factors that were, it's not a checklist, but they were factors that animated the discretion. They might be applied differently in a different case. And in our respectful submission, they were the appropriate factors. We've suggested some others, but bearing in mind the differences of Avila, but exercise of discretion is helpfully, on, we have over time developed as a, as a judicial community, understandings the, the, un, the recognized exercise of discretion, adequate alternative remedy. Um, prematurity and that's helpful to have that enunciated because it helps the judge yeah but adequate alternative remedy is forward-looking it's like you have another place to go avail of that it isn't saying you had an adequate alternative remedy because that's no longer relevant when you've exhausted the process I mean it's it's it, it ceases wait for the question it, it, it ceases to be a relevant factor. It makes no sense for the judge to look down from the bench and say, you have an alternative remedy when you've exhausted them all. What you're saying is the, the, the factor which we have understood to be you have an alternative remedy is transformed into you had an alternative remedy, end of story. It isn't the same. So thank you for the question, Justice Rowe. Sorry for jumping the gun back. Um, let me take the one example to, to engage with, you, with the scenario you've given me. If there had been an allegation of bias raised, and if an appeal had been brought on that question, and the, court of, the divisional court and then the court of appeal had determined that that was without merit, this court would not then say, you can rerun that argument in the context of your judicial review, in my respectful submission. Because this court would say, you had an adequate alternative remedy. You had a remedy that fully addressed that question. It was adjudicated, and we won't do it again. 
And so in my respectful submission, the adequate alternative remedy is both forward-looking and backward-looking in my respectful submission. So in my respectful submission, the Strickland factors were correct. You can uphold the decision below simply having regard to those factors. Should the court wish to um, re-examine the appropriateness of other factors, as other parties have said, Vavilov created greater uncertainty about how, how remedies that exist side by side uh, should be addressed. And, and we have provided you with some, some factors. And in our respectful submission, the first, which was part and parcel of Strickland, but which should be pulled out as a freestanding factor, is the nature of the statutory scheme. It must always be relevant. It may not lead to the conclusion that I'm arguing for here, but it should always be relevant. The nature of the decision at issue and the process that was followed. The importance of the decision to the individuals affected, you've heard much from interveners about the nature of the decision. And here we say that factor supports the, the discretion that was exercised. And whether or not there is a greater public interest uh, in, in the, the question that is raised. And I'm not quite at my time, but I know that the court is interested in the reasonableness of the decision. And so, of course, I'm at your disposal, but otherwise I might invite my colleague, Mr. Goldenberg, yeah, to address I'll that. Just, uh, I'll give you issue. an alternate reading of Vavilov. What you've said is those factors should relate to the exercise of discretion as to whether you uh, contemplate giving a remedy to an individual. Well, you, you had a good process. You know, that's, that's fine. There's, there, there are considerations that are, there are decisions which are fundamental to your well-being, and we've, we've heard from interveners on that. Uh, but the other way of viewing Vavilov is it was really about what is the standard of review? And legislative intent was the subject of consideration because before Vavilov, there was, a, there was a real question as to whether you had the same standard of review, whether you went under appeal or whether you went under judicial review. What Babilov said is legislative intent has to be given effect such that when there's a right of appeal, you've got the Hausen and Nicolaisen uh, standard of review as opposed to the reasonableness standard of review. The other thing, which I think in a very significant way that Babilov did, was to say, now that we have settled that in almost all instances it's a reasonableness standard of review, how is that given practical effect? As a matter of fact, most of the decision is about how you do a reasonableness review. So when you say, you extract the idea of legislative intent from Babilov and say, here is an indication that uh, from, from the jurisprudence that the court was willing to contemplate the exercise of discretion whether or not to grant a remedy in, in these circumstances. It seems to me you're using what was said about legislative intent for a purpose that was simply not contemplated because Vavilov answered, addressed other questions, really questions relating to the standard of review. There's no question that the context of Avalov was, as you have set out, Justice Rowe, 
but in my respectful submission, it brought legislative intent back into the centre of, of judicial review. And in my respectful submission, that is where it belongs, within constitutional limits, as, that, as the court laid out in a number of passages. And in my respectful submission, just as this court concluded, there was no reason to disregard legislative intent in the standard review. There was no reason to disregard it or to fault the divisional court for having had regard to it when it exercised uh, its discretion. I wonder if I might ask you, in, re in the response you gave to Justice Rowe uh, on his had-have uh, point, which I think is a, uh, a good point, a good way of putting the problem, really what you referred to, these grounds could have been raised earlier. Aren't those, doesn't that answer really invoke other discretionary grounds to reviews, review, waiver, acquiescence, delay, rather than the adequacy of the alternative remedy. And there are other discretionary grounds to refuse review, which your answer would seem to invoke in response to his question, but not provide an answer to that objection. I'm happy to answer. I see my time is still cl clocking down, and I do want to make sure that Mr. Goldenberg has 10 minutes to address the reasonableness of the decision. In my respectful submission, if I have your question, Justice Jamal, it is that there are other established discretionary grounds that might have been invoked. There are certainly many established discretionary grounds, and there are two questions posed in, Chris, in Strickland. Is there an adequate alternative remedy, and is it appropriate to undertake judicial review in the circumstances? And so in my respectful submission, I've made you my pitch on the adequate alternative remedy, but it's really on the, also on the second part. Is it appropriate to undertake it, given the scheme? Is it appropriately respectful of the scheme? And so in my respectful submission, that remains the right, the right construct. And with that, subject to the court's questions, I will has, pass the podium over to Mr. Goldenberg. Thank you. Good afternoon, Chief Justice, Justices. I want to tell you why, in the alternative, you should conclude that the LAT's decision here was reasonable. Let's start with the January 7, 2011 denial letter, which you'll find at tab 15, excuse me, 14 of our condensed book. This goes to a question that you asked of my friend, Justice Kazirer, about the language of the letter. Mr. Gleason emphasized that this letter of January 7th does not use the word refusal, doesn't use the word denial. He says that's a problem. What it does say in the first paragraph is that TD has made a determination that you, the appellant, are not entitled to the benefit. That language of not entitlement did not come from nowhere. It came from this court's judgment in Smith. Let me show you where. You'll find that at tab 19 of my condensed book. In paragraph 20 of Smith, which is a paragraph, part of which my friend referred you to this morning, this is the paragraph where Justice Gontier speaks about the equivocal sense of indeterminacy. What Justice Gontier concluded cured that equivocal sense of indeterminacy was the language of the letter sent not to Ms. Smith, but to her solicitor, which stated, and you'll find this quoted three lines up, excuse me, two lines up from the bottom of the page, Ms. Smith is no longer entitled to income replacement benefits. That's where those words come from. The insurance industry did what you told them to do 21 years ago. So Mr. Goldenberg, if we agree with you on the language of that letter and the impact, 
What do you make with the argument raised by Mr. Gleason that given the fact that the IRB uh, benefits were uh, reinstated in, on February 16, it's just like uh, it was not a, we are not talking about a denial anymore arising from the letter of January 7. Thank you, Justice Cote. So the first response is that the language of the regulation, and we've excerpted the regulation at different points in time behind tab 20 of our book, uses the language of a refusal to pay benefits. Once there's been a refusal to pay, the clock starts to run. The case law also establishes that because of the insurer's duty of utmost good faith, about which you heard from my friend earlier, the insurer has to keep an open mind. There has to be an opening for a continued discussion with the insured in order for the, for the insurer not to be in breach of their obligation. And so that is why the LAT's predecessor in adjudicating these disputes, the Financial Services Commission of Ontario, in arbitral decisions, a line of which are cited in our factum, one of which is at tab 21 of our book, state that continued discussions between an insurer and the insured do not void a valid refusal because insurers are required to keep an open mind even after denying a claim. And this is consistent with the priority of timeliness, which is emphasized in the Cunningham Report. These disputes are not supposed to drag on and on and There's on. a difference between discussions and mediation and so on and actually restarting the benefits. Well, in this case, the benefits were temporarily restored, but then the refusal was restored in turn. And the point is, once that process begins, the, the, the approach... Where was the refusal restored? How was it restored? In the February letter, as which my friend took you to earlier. You mean the September letter? I believe it's January, then February, then September. Yes. And then it was, so it was restored in February. So when was it validly denied after that? So this is what the Court of Appeal says, is that the benefits were finally denied in September. But the valid refusal to pay, denial is not the language of the regulation. The regulation says refusal to pay. The valid refusal to pay, which starts the clock, the LAT reasonably determined, was the January Mr. Goldenberg, letter. it's not what the Court of Appeal said. What, what did the adjudicator say? I read the adjudicator's reasons to say that the September letter was not a valid denial because, because there was no attachment. So, the, the, so if I were standing here simply relying on the September denial, if that is what the adjudicator had concluded, that would be an issue. In this case, what the adjudicator concludes is that there was a valid refusal to pay in January. That starts the clock so that even though there was a letter in September to which the form was not attached, that, doesn't, that, that was not the refusal to pay that starts the limitation period running. nationality issue there. There's a refusal in January. The IRB is restarted in February, and there's no valid denial after the restarting. You have to go back to a, a prior denial before it was restarted. It's the, there is no failure in rationality, Justice Karakatsanis, because the, the process here is designed to ensure the timely adjudication of disputes. Insurer says we're refusing to pay this benefit. There might be an assessment. There might be a restoration of the benefit temporarily. There might be a further determination. But you have two years from that initial refusal to pay in order to engage the dispute resolution process, which the appellant did. And the other point that is important to take from paragraph 20 of Smith is that the involvement of the solicitor is relevant. The letter to the solicitor cured the indeterminacy in the Smith case. And the involvement of the solicitor was considered by the decision maker, by the LAT, in this case as well. And you'll find that in paragraphs 21 to 24 of the LAT's preliminary decision. What the LAT uh, concluded, what the adjudicator concluded, 
is that Ms. Yatar, the appellant, relied to the detriment, to her detriment, on the expertise of her counsel in the face of the statutory limitation period, because that limitation period ultimately expired not two years after any of these letters, but 90 days after the mediator provides his report, that is in April of 2014. So regardless of when the clock starts to run, the end date is the same. The LAT adjudicator so concluded that was reasonable, and the divisional court makes that point as well. So we're not talking- is it, is it what you're saying then that it would be a jurisprudential point if we, if the decision was that the, uh, after initial denial of benefits, uh, a temporary uh, reinstatement, and then an ultimate decision later on uh, to deny the benefits. That would actually be a jurisprudential point. It wouldn't simply be a point that would relate to this case alone. Is that, is that, is that what you're saying? Uh, Chief Justice, my time's expired. Ahead, uh, thank you, Justice Jamal. So yes, the answer to your question is yes. The interpretation of Smith is not before this court. There was a statutory appeal brought with respect to the Smith issue. It was not pursued beyond the divisional court. It wasn't argued in the Court of Appeal. It's not at issue here. So yes, if this court were to say, you've been doing it wrong, Ontario Tribunal, you've been interpreting Smith wrong. What Smith actually means is that initial refusal to pay does not start the limitation period running. Subsequent discussions are relevant. Then that bright line from Smith would no longer be the bright line. That would be of jurisprudential consequence in the Ontario insurance sector. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Justices. The court will take its uh, break for lunch. We'll be back at 1.15. Please be seated. Mr. Provart. Good afternoon, uh, Chief Justice, Justices. Um, Canada's submissions today are directed at the scope uh, and nature of judicial discretion to decline to hear and determine judicial review applications, particularly based on the availability of an adequate alternative remedy. And this discretion, of course, grounded the Ontario Court of Appeals decision in this case and is a separate question from that of the availability of judicial review uh, in legislation or at common law. And I'm going to discuss this distinction in the first part of my submissions. And in the second part, uh, I will discuss some of the principles that guide the exercise of judicial discretion. So regarding the discretionary nature of judicial review, it's important to maintain a distinction between the availability and the exercise of judicial review. They're conceptually distinct, doctrinally distinct as well. The availability of judicial review has a constitutional dimension based on Section 96 of the Constitution Act 1867 and the principle of the rule of law. 
And although there remain live issues with respect to how Crevier's protection of judicial review of jurisdictional error should be interpreted in modern Canadian administrative law, those issues do not arise squarely in this case, as you noted at the outset today, Justice Jamal. And that's because, as the Court of Appeal noted at paragraphs 39 to 40 of its decision, there is no issue that an application for judicial review was available to the appellant here, both under the Insurance Act and under the Judicial Review Procedure Act. But even when judicial review is available, the reviewing court is neither bound to undertake judicial review nor to grant judicial review remedies. And that's the case even when the litigant has established a ground on which the court might validly intervene on the merits. And we see that both in legislation, like in sections 2.1 and 2.5 of the Judicial Review Procedure Act, and in the jurisprudence. And this court has made it clear that superior courts retain what, what's been described as an overriding discretion, as the language from Strickland, to refuse to entertain uh, a judicial review or deny relief. And we discussed the origins and evolution of this residual discretion, discretion in our factum at some, in some, some detail. The key point is that the doctrine is not simply a historic relic of a bygone era where certiorari and mandamus were writs of grace to be issued at the pleasure of the Crown, as you alluded to earlier, Justice Rowe. Indeed, uh, the court's discretion to refuse to take up judicial, discretion, judicial review or to deny administrative remedies uh, in appropriate cases reflects a public interest uh, consideration. And that's the, the key that's at play in modern administrative law. Um, David Mullen has put this well, and we cite this uh, in, in our paragraph five of our factum. It's this consistent concern with whether granting relief will interfere with the effective functioning of the administrative process, fail to sufficiently recognize the capacity of statutory authorities to themselves deal with matters at issue, and involve an inappropriate use of the court's own process. And a long line of jurisprudence from this court has thus maintained the discretionary nature of judicial review in Canada flowing from Haralkin right through to Strickland. And the jurisprudence has also established several grounds for declining relief. Uh, you've already referenced those as well, Justice Rowe, uh, conduct of the parties, undue delay. Um, Justice Jamal, you also talked about acquiescence. And of course, existence of alternative remedies. That's, that's the issue here. Um, we do disagree with Professor Daly that this case involves a new basis for declining relief. The issue is whether there was an adequate alternative remedy here and whether the balance of convenience weighs in favor of declining judicial review. That balance of convenience factor is similar to what we see uh, in requests for equitable uh, relief, uh, interlocutory injunctions and so on, discretionary relief, uh, or in proceeding with moot cases, for instance. Uh, balance of convenience incorporates rule of law objectives of judicial review with principles of access to justice, separation of powers, respect for legislative intent, and in a very much a large sense, balances public interest against the impact on the individual. Um, Justice Martin, you um, were asking about uh, the Strickland test and its specificity, uh, uh, the specificity or the uniqueness of that particular case. And um, we would submit that it's, uh, the, the test articulated therein is not specific to the federal superior court uh, context. Uh, paragraphs 40 to 45 of Strickland certainly don't suggest as much or that there's a limitation uh, in the decision. And they do refer to cases like Matsky, uh, Auditor General, 
neither of which are federal superior court adequate alternative remedy type cases. Harrelkin wasn't either, of course. Harrelkin was about recourse to the university senate in that case. So Strickland is thus good law of general application. It brings together decades of, of jurisprudence and principles on how uh, adequate alternative remedies should be applied in a coherent and readily applicable manner. It's in no way inconsistent with Vavilov, uh, should not be discarded. Whether the doctrine of adequate alternative remedy was applied in error here by the courts below based on a misunderstanding of Vavlov or of Strickland or of any other principles, that's a different question. And that's a question uh, going to the merits, which we make no submission on uh, today. So um, I will turn now to the second part of my argument, uh, the principles guiding the court's discretion based on adequate alternative remedies. And we see several principles here uh, and our, our starting proposition is that when, uh, while courts should not hesitate to refuse to proceed in appropriate circumstances, they may properly assume that they should proceed in the absence of any grounds raised by the parties or the court to the contrary. And we see this as properly anchoring judicial review in the rule of law, supports the purpose of judicial review, which is an essential tool for ensuring the lawfulness of public decision-making, uh, a formal presumption to decline judicial review when it's available, would be at odds with this core purpose, uh, the core purpose of modern administrative law. And that said, of course, the existence of an adequate alternative recourse mechanism is one of the well-established grounds for the courts to decline to undertake judicial review uh, and recourse to adequate alternative remedies is consistent with such a careful approach. Um, and there's several good reasons for that. And the first is that the court has made it clear that legislative decisions Concerning institutional design choice should be respected by the courts. Um, deciding not to hear a matter or not to grant a remedy in the presence of other administrative remedies uh, or judicial remedies for that matter is consistent with that form of respect and the need to avoid what the court has described in Dunsmuir as undue interference with the discharge of administrative functions in respect of matters delegated to administrative bodies by parliament and legislatures. Second, uh, the adequate uh, recourse mechanisms may take various forms tailored to the particular decision-making context or the type of error, and that includes reconsideration, de novo appeals. Um, in the federal sphere, sphere, we certainly see this throughout the federal law book uh, in contexts as diverse as uh, provision for reopening of immigration and admissibility hearings, appeals, um, through to um, uh, reconsideration under the Marine Transport Security Regulations, de novo appeals under the Environmental Protection Act, and so on. So all of these administrative decision makers have subject matter expertise, and they are well situated for assessing both substantive issues and procedural fairness in their institutional context. Uh, third point about uh, adequate alternative remedies, non-judicial procedures often favor access to justice. They provide an accessible, timely, and cost-effective opportunity for the executive branch to correct errors. And declining to undertake judicial review can thus further access to justice by limiting the proliferation of proceedings when an adequate, even if it's not an identical, remedy is already available elsewhere. So adequate alternative remedies we see can obviate the need for judicial review rather than insulating decisions from review. And the fourth point is that 
some legislative schemes also provide for specific judicial proceedings, and I, I alluded to this earlier, appeals, that is to say, before superior courts or the federal court, uh, federal court of appeal, we saw in the Bell NFL matter. Um, uh, also, inferior courts like the Cour du Québec. And though judicial review is uniquely designed to review the legality of decisions, other judicial recourse may also ensure that this objective is met. Um, the final point I wish to make in my few remaining session, seconds is that uh, although you have various proposals before the court to attempt to provide guidance on when the court should exercise its discretion to decline a judicial review based on adequate alternative remedies, we say the Strickland uh, principles are the best source of guidance and remain good law. The eight considerations there are identified at paragraph 42. The one point we would highlight is that there is a reference uh, in the case law, and we cite cases from Matsky through to Ewart, as uh, saying that uh, the remedy has to be, in all the circumstances, adequate to address the appellant's, applicant's grievance. Thank you. So there's certainly an implicit notion that the availability of the remedy uh, should be taken into account, and we say it could be clarified that that is indeed a relevant consideration. Thank you very uh, much. In this case. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Michael Sims. Good afternoon, Justices. The Attorney General of Ontario argues for a presumption that courts should decline to grant judicial review where the legislature has limited appeals of administrative decisions to questions of law alone. And I emphasize the word to grant. Uh, Ontario is not arguing for a screening mechanism. Uh, if if uh, Ontario's proposal is accepted, an applicant would still get in the door. Instead, we are arguing for a starting point in the analysis. And in support of that position, the Attorney General of Ontario makes three points. First, a rebuttable presumption against judicial review respects the legislature's intent in enacting a limited appeal clause. Second, such a presumption does not offend the rule of law. And third, that presumption will have practical benefits, encouraging simplicity, efficiency, finality and access to justice. <clears throat> Excuse me. With regard to our first point, this court recognized in Vavilov that legislatures create administrative tribunals for a variety of reasons, including their ability to provide a simplified and streamlined proceeding intended to promote access to justice. And to that point, I would add finality. But may I ask you a simple question? Um, if Ontario's position is that there should be a presumption against judicial uh, review, isn't it also within Ontario's power to expressly state an intention in its legislative scheme um, that you could uh, take any number of different positions? Subject to constitutional constraints from sections 96 to 100 of, of the Constitution Act, yes, it could. And, and obviously, it, it didn't do so here. Yeah, Our, I guess my, my point there is that it, 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 if we're being asked to discern a legislative intent by a partial restriction to appeal rights and to, to say what that means about judicial review, aren't you in a better position to clarify that? Well, <clears throat> the, um, I, think, I think what you have here is a dialogue between the legislature and the courts. The legislature of Ontario and, and Mr. Dewart and, uh, and 
counsel for the respondents have alluded to this this morning. The, the legislature has enacted through section 11 through section two of the JRPA, uh, a regime where it has not explicitly interfered with the divisional court's jurisdiction for judicial review, but at the same time, we say, has signaled its intent that courts should proceed with restraint in the presence of an appeal mechanism, which we say is sufficient to satisfy the concerns about the rule of law and the supervision of uh, the executive branch's decision making. Uh, so as I say, in Filiola, this court held that respect for the finality of an administrative decision increases both fairness and the integrity of the tribunal and the administration of justice. And we say in section 11, the legislature has done just that by striking a balance between accountability and fairness on the one hand and efficiency and finality on the other. You've heard my friend for the Attorney General of Canada argue that courts should assume as a starting point that they should proceed with judicial review unless someone raises an objection. As you've heard, we start from a presumption against the availability or the granting of judicial review. I think ultimately Ontario and Canada arrive at the same place. In our submission, Ontario's position is more consistent with the legislature's uh, intention as expressed in section 11 of the LAD Act and with this court's guidance in Vavilov. To anticipate my third point, uh, the presumption against judicial review would also encourage efficiency and finality in the administration of justice. Second, and I'll touch on this only briefly because others have, have noted this already, um, serious errors of fact amount to errors of law. And the rule of law does not require that courts review administrative decisions for factual errors. The rule of law requires review for legality. And in our submission, that would be covered by the appeal provision in section 11 of the LAT Act. One of the problems we were trying to get at in Vavilov was the, the use of uh, what might be called disguised correctness. You, you kind of wave a flag that says reasonableness and then you do disguised correctness. I think we're being, the bait is being laid out for us to go for it again. Right? To basically wrap up factual matters and the application of, 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 of law to the facts as being legal questions so that we can bring it in under uh, uh, a limited right of appeal, which I think would be kind of getting ourselves into the, back into the mess we tried to get ourselves out of. So Ontario is certainly not inviting this court to, to cut the, the knot by redefining errors of law in, in a broader, beyond the scope as currently set out in Canadian law. What we are saying is that the rule of law does not require policing my lesser errors of fact. So if you consider a grid with four squares, errors of law, errors of fact, more serious, less serious, it's the bottom left-hand corner that is going to go unpoliced if this court accepts Ontario's submissions. And we say that's not, inconsistent with the rule of law. And it's also not inconsistent with how Canadian law approaches other similar questions in similar contexts. So for instance, we apply the palpable and overriding standard to criminal appeals where the liberty of the subject is at issue. In Ontario, leave is required to appeal from a decision of the divisional court to the Ontario Court of Appeal as happened in this case. I can tell you from bitter experience that if you 
seek leave to appeal from the divisional court and articulate a series of factual errors on the part of the divisional court, the Court of Appeal is very reluctant or very unlikely to give you leave to appeal. So we tolerate finality around lesser errors of fact or findings of fact in all kinds of different contexts, and there's no basis to distinguish that in this case here, in the case in the context of administrative law. Mr. Sims, is, is there any other appellate authority other than the decisions that we have before us that since Harelkin that have said that a limited right of appeal creates a, uh, on a question of law, creates a discretionary bar? Because I, I what, what I'm um, puzzled by is uh, the Harelkin, uh, Matsqui, Strickland framework hasn't really changed throughout the last however many years. And Vavilov didn't change that, uh, really. And so I'm just wondering if, if this is all so logical, I'm just wondering why there hasn't been an appellate, another appellate court somewhere that's taken this line of analysis, because this, this is the routine fare of the discretionary refusal to exercise uh, judicial review powers. So if it's all so logical and uh, follows so naturally, I'm just wondering why there isn't other authority. Well, so there are two parts to your question. The first part, I'm not aware of, of authority I can draw the court's attention to that hasn't already been presented by the parties and the interveners. Second, if, if I've understood your, your concern, Justice Jamal, I, I think the fact that, that Strickland at the end of that line of cases remains is a testament to both its flexibility, as Ms. Lonsdale was arguing, into its usefulness as an, an analytic device. Uh, I'm running short, so in brief, in, in support of my third point, that a presumption will have practical benefit. Uh, as Ontario argued before the Court of Appeal and this comment was taken up, more process does not necessarily mean more justice. Process increases length, complexity, and the costs of litigation which typically favors a party with more resources, such as an, uh, an institutional or a corporate defendant or a, or a respondent or a, a government party. Practically speaking, an applicant for judicial review seeking to challenge a lesser error of fact is not going to have any greater advantage uh, because of the very restricted role for courts on judicial review in policing findings of fact, and that's course set out in uh, clearly in paragraph 125 of this court's decision in Babylon. And so I don't want to dwell on the facts of this case, but, but you know, there, whether a party attached their rent check to their, their letter or not is a question of fact. Um, deciding whose story about whether the, the rent check was enclosed with the letter making the credibility determination between competing stories is exactly the kind of thing that is for a tribunal engaged in a fact-finding exercise and is exactly the sort of thing that a court on judicial review is going to be very reluctant to interfere with, especially in light of this court's guidance in Babylon. That's my time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Maître Rochette. Bonjour. Dans mon euh, mémoire, j'ai beaucoup insisté sur les particularités euh, du mécanisme d'appel devant la Cour du Québec. Je n'y reviendrai pas. Je voudrais faire aujourd'hui trois propositions d'ordre général. La première, c'est que euh, 
quand la Cour supérieure agit en marge du processus décisionnel mis en place par le législateur, c'est à la Cour supérieure de s'assurer que son intervention dans ce processus est dans l'intérêt public. Ma deuxième proposition, c'est que la discrétion inhérente caractérise le contrôle judiciaire a encore un rôle très important à jouer, un rôle qui est complémentaire de l'obligation de déférence que traduit la norme de la décision raisonnable. Troisième proposition, c'est tout simplement qu'il faut faire confiance aux juges des cours supérieurs dans leur sagesse, la manière judicieuse d'exercer la discrétion. Donc, je vais revenir sur ma première proposition. Donc, euh, évidemment, il s'agit, le contrôle judiciaire, ce sont euh, un recours extraordinaire. On sait que ça ne veut pas dire que extraordinaire, ça ne veut pas dire que c'est rare, ça ne veut pas dire que c'est formidable, ça veut dire tout simplement que c'est hors de l'ordinaire, hors du processus habituel. Alors, la différence fondamentale entre l'appel et le pourvoi en contrôle judiciaire, c'est que dans le cas de l'appel, le législateur se prononce lui-même sur l'intérêt public d'intervenir euh, si euh, l'intérêt des partis le suggère. Donc, quand le législateur se prononce sur l'existence d'un droit d'appel, ça veut dire que la Cour, qui agit au palier de l'appel, peut tenir pour acquis qu'il est dans l'intérêt public qu'elle fasse droit euh, à la demande qui lui est faite par les partis. Donc, il suffit de tenir compte de l'intérêt des partis. Par contre, quand on est en contrôle judiciaire et qu'il n'y a pas de recours euh, statutaire ou législatif, c'est à la Cour supérieure, c'est ce que dit l'arrêt finalement, c'est la leçon, je crois, de l'arrêt Strickland et, et de la jurisprudence qui l'a précédé. C'est que c'est à la Cour supérieure de s'assurer que son intervention est dans l'intérêt public. Et par exemple, quand euh, la Cour supérieure, quand, quand la jurisprudence nous dit que la, le pourvoi en contrôle judiciaire ne devrait pas être... Euh, euh, examiner euh, s'il si est formé de façon prématurée ou tardive. C'est ça qu'il fait. C'est ça que fait la Cour supérieure. Elle se demande si la réparation est, est appropriée à ce stade-ci des procédures. Donc, c'est à elle, à défaut euh, d'intention législative, c'est à elle, à la Cour, de se poser euh, la question de l'intérêt public et de s'assurer de préserver autant que possible l'intégrité et l'efficacité du processus décisionnel mis en place par le législateur, dont l'appel fait partie. Alors, c'est ici que je crois qu'il est pertinent à l'exercice de la discrétion de tenir compte des particularités du mécanisme d'appel. Maître Rochette, on ne vous entend pas très bien. Oui, je Excusez-moi. Est-ce euh, que ça va mieux? Est-ce que vous m'entendez bien? Bon. Euh, voilà. Mon deuxième point, c'est que euh, la, la discrétion a encore un rôle à jouer qui est très différent de, euh, du pouvoir discrétionnaire, euh, de, de l'obligation de déférence que traduit la norme de la décision raisonnable. Et je vais donner un exemple pour le faire comprendre. C'est un exemple extrême. 
c'est euh, les décisions qui sont prises par la division des petites créances euh, de la Cour du Québec ou d'une cour inférieure dans les autres provinces. Il est dans, euh, j'allais dire, euh, la réalisation des objets euh, de la loi commande à ce qu'il n'y ait pas d'appel, mais euh, elle commande aussi aux cours supérieures de ne pas... Euh, d'éviter d'intervenir dans le processus des petites créances. Ça ne veut pas dire que ça, ça doit être impossible. C'est possible, mais elle doit l'éviter parce que si elle intervient, euh, disons, pour s'assurer que la décision rendue euh, par la division des petites créances n'est pas raisonnable, bien, euh, l'objectif même de mettre en place un processus particulier pour le traitement des petites créances serait, je vais dire, euh, serait euh, euh, contrecarré. Donc, la discrétion a encore un rôle à jouer qui est important et qui est complémentaire. Mon troisième point, c'est qu'il faut faire confiance aux juges des, des cours supérieurs qui agissent en première instance. C'est l'objet même de la discrétion. Et il faut éviter, je crois, de formuler des critères qui sont trop contraignants ou trop directifs. Il faut laisser la marge d'appréciation la plus large possible au juge de première instance et euh, dire, faire déférence à leur appréciation discrétionnaire. C'est le rôle de la Cour supérieure de première instance d'exercer ce pouvoir discrétionnaire et il faut leur faire confiance. Alors, je, je, je comprends les préoccupations qui ont été exprimées aujourd'hui. Partie plus vulnérables, plus euh, administrés qui sont dans des situations précaires. Je pense que les cours supérieurs sont capables de s'assurer que la, les personnes qui sont vulnérables ne sont pas victimes de déni de justice. Et il faut leur faire confiance, je crois. C'est le principe même de la discrétion euh, qui caractérise le contrôle judiciaire. Mais si on, fait confiance, euh, si on fait confiance au juge des cours supérieures, euh, n'est-ce pas que c'est en effet opposé à une contrainte qui dit qu'il faut que la situation soit rare? Donc, on, si on fait confiance au juge qu'ils appliquent les facteurs Strickland, n'est-ce pas que ça respecte leur rôle dans le contexte de révision judiciaire? D'abord, il y a peut-être des particularités dans le cas du Québec, euh, le mécanisme d'appel à la Cour du Québec, mais je, je suis assez d'accord avec vous que euh, l'objectif n'est pas d'établir euh, si l'intervention de la Cour supérieure sera rare ou exceptionnelle ou, ou courante. L'important, c'est de s'assurer que le pouvoir discrétionnaire continue d'exister, qu'il s'agit d'un pilier important euh, du euh, système judiciaire canadien et, et que euh, l'intérêt public traduit les particularités du mécanisme d'appel ne sera pas contourné systématiquement par euh, l'exercice d'un pourvoi en contrôle judiciaire. Il pas d'autres questions, je pense que… Je vous remercie. Merci. Euh, Maître, euh, euh, M. Michael Wall.
Mr. Wall, we don't, we don't hear you. My apologies, Chief Justice. Can you hear me now? Yes. Thank you. Uh, Alberta intervenes in this appeal to make three primary submissions. The first and most important is that parties subject to administrative decision-making should have a stable and predictable framework for curial review. The second is that the best way to ensure a stable and predictable framework is for this court to clarify the constitutional boundaries within which the legislature is operating when designing that framework. The third is that a statutory right of appeal on questions of law is sufficient in most circumstances to satisfy the constitutional purposes of curial review and should, absent a statutory intention to the contrary, be given effect. Over the past few decades, this court's administrative law jurisprudence, I would argue, has moved away from basing the availability of curial review on an ad hoc case-by-case -case search for jurisdictional error towards a more simple, principled, and generally applicable framework. Um, in both Dunsmuir and Vavilov, an, an animating purpose for the court was to simplify judicial review to move the parties away from arguing about technical legal issues like standard of review or characterization of the issues towards focusing on the merits of their disputes. Now, while Vavilov certainly brought greater stability uh, to the determination and application of the standard of review, it was somewhat unclear about the extent to which the legislature can limit the availability of curial review under the Constitution. Um, Vavilov implied, as my friend pointed out, that the legislature uh, has some constitutional authority to limit uh, the scope of curial review, though it could not do so entirely, but also noted that in the face of limit, a limited statutory right of appeal, judicial review of the remaining issues remains available. Now that ambiguity, uh, I would suggest, is in the source of academic commentary and disputes in the case law, in particular the Federal Court of Appeal. Now the practical result of that ambiguity is, as we've seen in this case, uh, parties duplicating curial review by filing both statutory appeals on questions of law and judicial reviews of the same administrative decision on potentially overlapping issues of mixed fact and law. Now, even when combined into one proceeding, duplicative statutory appeals and judicial reviews are inefficient, um, can focus the parties on technical legal distinctions and standard of review. And as the Federal Court of Appeal recently noted in Pier 1 a couple of weeks ago, can result in arguments that are repetitive or at best repackaged. Now, the, the decisions below applied the adequate alternative remedy doctrine to resolve the issue of du duplicative proceedings. Um, however, Alberta suggests that using this discretionary case-by-case -case approach to determining the availability of judicial review undermines the court's search for stability and predictability in the availability of curial review, creates uncertainty for the parties, and still generally requires the court uh, to hear the potentially duplicative or overlapping JR, or judicial review, sorry, um, to determine whether to exercise its discretion in the circumstances. The more stable and predictable approach from our, in our submission flows from an application of administrative law first principles. This court reminded us in Oceanport that absent constitutional constraints, common law, common law remedies and protections can be restricted or eliminated by statute. It follows that the legislature can limit and shape the availability of judicial review or curial review, except to the extent that it is constitutionally protected by uh, sections 96 to 101 of the Constitution Act. Clarifying the extent of that constitutional protection will, in our submission, provide the foundation for a stable and predictable approach to curial review, allowing the legislature to respond with an informed institutional design choice. 
Now, in Crevier, this court previously held that Section 96 protects uh, curial review only for questions of jurisdiction. However, I think um, since then, you know, administrative law has moved on from concepts of jurisdiction, um, and that concept has largely been subsumed within the standard of review analysis, and it's now uncertain what constitutes a question of jurisdiction. Alberta's submission is that, in general, a statutory appeal limited to questions of law is sufficient to satisfy, to satisfy the principles underlying the constitutional guarantee of curial oversight. The purpose of that curial oversight is to preserve the role of law by ensuring that administrative decision makers act within the scope of their lawful authority. Um, and a statutory of appeal allows for some level of factual review, which I won't touch too much on given that uh, my colleagues have already discussed that, um, while ensuring that questions of law are subject to a final answer from the courts. Together, we would submit that that provides sub sufficient oversight authority to ensure a decision maker is acting within the scope of their lawful authority. Um, in a recent concern, concurrence addressing the, whether judicial review remained available under Alberta's Workers' Compensation Act, Justice Ladder of Alberta's Court of Appeal concluded that a statutory right of appeal limited to questions of law provides sufficient curial oversight to satisfy the constitutional guarantee and generally uh, reveals a legislative intention to preclude judicial review. Um, in doing so, Justice Slatter observed that the legislature has always enjoyed a broad authority to determine the nature and availability of judicial review, including imposing limitation periods and uh, directing the applicable standard of review. Ultimately, judicial reviews and statutory appeals for Justice Slatter are merely two different procedural vehicles for accomplishing the same thing, namely curial review of administrative decisions. In short, Justice Slatter held that it's open to the legislature to oust questions of fact and mixed fact and law from curial review and oversight in general. And in general, it doesn't defend the rule of law to leave the last word on those issues with administrative decision makers. Uh, Mark Mancini, uh, an academic commentator who has been cited by this court in the past, has made the same points in a recent article um, that's to be published in the Canadian Bar Review, which is in, my, is in our uh, condensed book. And I would refer the court to that for further argument about the um, statutory appeals on questions of law satisfying the constitutional minimum required by Section 96. Uh, finally, if, if this court uh, determines that some level of actual review is actually constitutionally protected by Section 96, and that legitimacy and the rule of law require some sort of deferential review for errors of fact and mixed fact in law, Duplicative judicial reviews or curial review on factual issues can be avoided with two potential interpretations of limited statutory appeals. And first, I would suggest that absent an indication to the contrary, statutory indication to the contrary, it would be more consistent with legislative intent to read in the court's authority to consider those questions on a statutory appeal rather than presuming legislative, legislative silence indicates an intention to allow for a multiplicity of proceedings in the same or in a different Section 96 court. And finally, I would suggest that there is some uh, suggestion in the court's prior decisions uh, that would support uh, the idea that in the context of a statutory appeal from an administrative decision, the legislature cannot delegate the lawful authority to make a palpable and overriding error of fact, and to do so could amount to an error of law. Now there's, while you could argue that both conclusions expand the appellate jurisdiction beyond the legislature's intent, they may both better respect the institutional design choice inherent in subject, subjecting administrative decision to the court's appellate function and the categorical nature of that choice, while also respecting 
the legislature's preference, which you often see in statutes like the Judicature Act in Alberta or the Court of Justice Act in Ontario um, to avoid a multiplicity of proceedings. And in absence, any questions from the court, those are my submissions today. Thank you very much. Nina Bombier. Thank you, Justices. The Intervenor Insurance Bureau of Canada is a trade association representing property and casualty insurers across Canada. Its interest here in this appeal is in ensuring that a streamlined, affordable and fair process of dispute adjudication for statutory accident benefits is preserved. We submit that the approach of the court below regarding whether to exercise discretion to judicially review the tribunal's decision was appropriate because it considered, weighed and respected the legislative intent behind that system. And that legislative intent is consistent with the court's statement that it will be a rare case where the remedy of judicial review will be properly resorted to. I'd note that this conclusion does not create a bar to judicial review as the appellants have suggested, but rather it reflects the exceptional nature of judicial review and the overall purposes and policies of the legislative scheme. This court has heard much today about the discretionary nature of judicial review. And I'll submit only that it includes both a discretion whether to conduct a judicial review and a discretion not to grant a remedy upon consideration of the merits. This is made express in Strickland at paragraph 38. In my submission, Vavilov does not change this. It addressed the appropriate standard of review. It did not address the appropriate approach to discretion. The relevant factors, as has been submitted by many before you already today are set out in Strickland, the 2015 case of this court uh, in paragraphs 37 to 45. This includes consideration not only of an adequate alternative remedy, but also the purposes and policies underpinning a legislative scheme. Therefore, respect for the statutory framework and its legislative intent should be central to the determination of whether to exercise discretion. And in our submission, it was appropriately considered by both the Divisional Court and the Ontario Court of Appeal below. And I'd refer you to the Divisional Court's reasons, paragraphs 40 to 46, and the Court of Appeal's reasons at paragraph 44 to 45. Of note, the Court of Appeal, despite indicating that it would be a rare exercise of judicial discretion did recognize that it remained available where these where alternative remedies were insufficient to address the particular facts of a case before it and these would remain to be addressed by the court in its discretion on a case-by-case -case basis therefore there is not a bar to judicial review this remains an exercise of discretion and it reflects an exceptional remedy in the context of this legislative scheme. Regarding legislative intent, it is more than just a limited right of appeal. The broader purposes and policies recognize that 
This system was overhauled in 2016, following industry-wide consultations and a report from Justice Cunningham. The prior system suffered from systemic backlogs, growing costs, and the resort to courts to resolve disputes. The amendments were implemented in 2016 to redress this, and given the broad right of appeal on questions of law, that residual judicial discretion really applies to factual findings and mixed findings of fact and law with no extricable question of law. The legislative intent of the reforms was to speed up dispute resolution by finding an efficient, fair, and accessible mechanism for resolving disputes and to reduce insurance rates. The legislature provided for a broad right of reconsideration to ensure efficiency and finality. In our submission, a lack of finality, duplicative proceedings, and delays would not serve the legislative intent. And it's important that this court preserve the discretion of courts in determining whether to exercise judicial review. Final point, I would note that an efficient and streamlined approach will benefit all users of the system, both the more vulnerable ones and the better funded ones, and it will help overall to keep insurance costs in check. Thank you very much. Thank you. Robin Gage. Chief Justice, Justices, I appear along with my colleague Julia Riddle on behalf of British Columbia's Forest Appeals Commission. The Forest Appeals Commission is an appellate level tribunal that adjudicates disputes between the government of British Columbia on the one hand and private litigants on the other. The Commission's decisions are subject to a limited right of appeal to the BC Supreme Court and with leave to the Court of Appeal. These appeals are restricted to questions of law and jurisdiction. There are some important differences, though, between the BC regime and the regime at issue in this case. One of which is that the Forest Appeals Commission's uh, statutory regime does not expressly, um, or we would say impliedly, uh, preserve um, judicial review. Second, the British Columbia Judicial Review Procedure Act, unlike the Ontario Act, far from preserving judicial review, in fact, we say in section four of the JRPA, expressly uh, acknowledges the legislative ability to limit or even prohibit judicial review. Within this context, prior to the decision in Vavilov, the Forest Appeals Commission never faced a parallel duplicative process such as the one at issue here. And indeed, uh, from our review, there is no regime in British Columbia that appears to have um, functioned with this parallel system of review, for at least for the same decision of an administrative tribunal. We appreciate certainly that the existence of a limited right of appeal, as said in Vavilov, does not on its own restrict availability of judicial review. But we say that the converse principle should also be rejected. 
In other words, it should not be presumed that judicial review is always available, subject only to discretionary bars. In that respect, um, we certainly acknowledge, as Justice Jamal has pointed out, that a statutory right of appeal and a judicial review are fundamentally different beasts. That is undoubtedly true. But we also note that both are ways in which the court can fulfill its rule of law function to uh, review the legality of an administrative uh, exercise. And we also say that both are subject to limits placed by the legislature. Just as the legislature can impose limits on the right of appeal, as it has done in this case, so too we say, as, no, as confirmed in Crevier and Oceanport, can the legislature restrict the scope and availability of judicial review, subject only, of course, to the constitutional limits. We say that where the principles of statutory interpretation um, are, are analyzed, the question of whether or not the legislature has indeed imposed such limits is determined through that exercise of statutory interpretation but it takes into account the whole of the context and where the principles of statutory interpretation support a legislative intent to restrict the court's role only to those matters that fall within the limited right of appeal, that legislative intent must be given effect. Again, subject only to constitutional constraints. With respect to those constitutional restraints, we say that the proposition that all aspects of tribunal's decision-making must be subject to unrestricted review by a superior court in order to fulfill the court's core Section 96 function must be rejected. We say that would be a substantial departure from the court's decision in Crevier and would also be inconsistent with the most recent jurisprudence on Section 96 itself. In that jurisprudence, the core jurisdiction of superior courts has been described as a very narrow one, which includes only critically important jurisdictions. And while certainly some key aspects of the court's supervision of state administrative action may be considered part of the core, we say that doesn't mean that every aspect of administrative action, no matter how far removed from the rule of law, lies at the core. Thank you. Thank you very much. Reply. Uh, thank you, Chief Justice. <clears throat> I understood my friend Ms. Lonsdale to say that she's not defending the exceptional or rare adjectives. I assume she's also not defending unusual, but simply saying that the case of, in this case, the result can be justified by the fact that the divisional court exercises discretion. Regardless of whether or not that's correct, you are still left, Canadians are still left with the decision to the Court of Appeal and the decision, the conflicting decisions in um, the federal court. Um, and there's a conflicting decision between Alberta and Manitoba. The question still needs to be addressed. Um, <clears throat> I also understood my friend Ms. Lonsdale, when she was making submissions about adequate alternative remedies, to say that an appeal could be an alter alternative, adequate alternative remedy, and she referred to my submissions about bias. The argument is not that there was an apprehension of bias in this case, or uh, rather, the argument is that there is an inherent lack of independence of administrative tribunals 
and that does not give rise to an apprehension of bias. That's what Oceanport stands for. So it's not, so, so, so it's not legal bias. It's an ingrained, inherent lack of independence, and that's the purpose for the um, uh, standard review articulated in Vavilov. Um, Justice Martin, you asked one of my friends if uh, judicial review is mentioned in Mr. Cunningham's report. I don't believe so. I searched for it and couldn't find it. Um, <clears throat> Justice Kazire, you asked Mr. Blumenthal about paragraph 45 of Yatar in the Court of Appeal, and in particular, you asked him about the sentence, uh, the divisional court correctly interpreted the legislative scheme as evincing an intention to limit recourse to the courts. It is inconsistent with this decision by the legislature to limit the right of appeal to questions of law and then to hold that the remedy of judicial review is all-encompassing. That, I say two things about that sentence and with great respect to my learned friend, you didn't get an answer. That is non-sequitous. That sentence is non-sequitous and it, as we've just heard, it ignores the fact that JR and appeals are different animals. And, uh, and that is the key of the flaw of the reasoning in the court below. <clears throat> I turn now to the question of the January letter uh, that my friend referred to. The January, one has to read the entire first sentence. It says, please be advised we have made a determination that you are not entitled to certain benefits as a result of your failure to submit a completed form. The regulation which is reproduced, and I won't ask you to turn it up now, but the regulation that is reproduced to paragraphs 32 to 34 of my factum deal with, at the beginning, an obligation on the insured person to submit certain information and on the fact that the insurer can uh, uh, determine that they're not entitled to the benefit until they comply. It then deals with a completely separate topic of refusing a benefit. That was a determination that the insured was not entitled to receive the benefit because she hadn't put in a form. Can, I just, can I just ask you about your friend, so in, in that line, with regard to the February 16th letter. So he says, notwithstanding the fact, uh, with regards to those specific benefits in the second part of the letter, that there's a new decision that's been made, they've been granted. Um, is your point of view that the timeline changes at that point and it goes back to the two years? Of course it does. Of course it does. Because if, if, if the benefits are, are not provided because of the failure to provide the form, and then they're provided, let's say they're provided for two years and one day, the insurer can, and then the, the insurer refuses to provide them, the insurer can then turn around and say, oh no, way back in the day you didn't put in a form and that started the limitation period running. And that only has to be stated in clear terms uh, in my submission to see that it's not what, what about Mr. Goldenberg's argument that it's the first refusal and that's, this isn't a, a narrow point that this is actually going to upset the insurance practice in Ontario? Because that's obviously a matter of grave concern because some of us are not familiar with this area at all and are relying on you to tell us what is the practice regarding uh, how Smith is applied. Uh, the, the, well, I, I, I'm not sure I'm much more qualified to, to, to speak to that specifically, Justice Jamal, but, but it, can't be, um, it can't be that if there's a decision not to provide them temporarily while we're waiting for a form, it can't be that that starts the limitation period running if the benefits are subsequently provided for the very reason I've just given. And it, that is the universal law in Ontario, which I very much doubt. Um, it is unreasonable. 
Can I just, oh, I just had a quick question leading up to your response. If we look at the letter itself, it doesn't say temporarily, does it? No. It was, sorry. Like I, I'm looking at um, the letter of February 16th. And I know your friend said temporarily, but when I look at it, we've determined that you, have an, uh, you are entitled to the following specified benefits. It doesn't say that it's limited, is it? it the word, um, as far as I recall, the word uh, temporary is not used there. But it did, as, as the adjudicator first instance found, upon receiving it, um, uh, the insured had uh, an option and she could reinstate the benefits by providing the form which is what happened and uh, in your deliberations if you look at the regulation uh, at the end of my fact and the one I referred to a few minutes ago you'll see that it, the process tracks identically. All right, yeah, just scared of silence. One last question to you. Uh, I just want to be clear about your position. If we accept your submissions about the January first, the January letter, then I understand uh, your position is the entire decision is unreasonable. If we do not, but we are persuaded by your submission that the um, income replacement benefit uh, was started and there was no subsequent denial, would that just impact the decision regarding the IRB? So I'm looking at what is your position with respect to remedy? Uh, that the, the presumptive uh, remedy on a JR, and I'm sorry, I've forgotten the authority for this, is that it's remitted for a rehearing as opposed to being determined by the, the, the uh, appellate court. Speaking, then. Yes, Justice Carrick. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. The court will take the case under advisement. Thank counsel for your submissions.